You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 602. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the week of January 15th, 2024. In today's episode, a panel flies off the side of a 737 MAX 9 in midair. And a Delta pilot charged with threatening to shoot his captain says it was a misunderstanding. Also ahead, more news and your feedback. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger and Flight 602 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 Winds on 92.3 FM in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, former U.S. Air Force UPT instructor and Starlifter pilot, retired 727-717 and Mad Dog captain for Delta Airlines. And joining us from her lakeside studio in South a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, Iron Man, strength training, training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, it's Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. That's kind of a mouthful. We should pare that down. I don't need all those things in my intro anymore. But you're, but you're uh, that and more. So well, we, we can we can highlight, make some highlights. Just a small yeah, slice of all that. the all the crazy things you do. <laughs> and uh, so good to see you, Steph. And joining us from his studio, in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340, captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways, it's Captain Nick. Oh, hi, Jeff, and uh, hi there, Steph. Lovely to be joining you two again. And uh, it's a lovely day here in the UK, except, of course, it's about zero degrees centigrade. Bruh. Woo, chilly. Mm. And also joining us from his home studio in the air capital, low and slow pilot, AMP mechanic, old airplane enthusiast, Iron Man, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry. <laughs> it's Nick Camacho. More like a marshmallow man than an Iron Man over here. But hey, I'm glad to be back. Good to have you with us. And I'm a Michelin man. A Michelin man. That's what I am. And also joining us. From her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer director, it's Liz Piper. Hi, everybody. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good show, you guys. Thanks for being here with us tonight. (laughs) I haven't, I had one beer, that's it, but that was like an hour and a half ago. 
So, mm-hmm. and I wish that I had mm-hmm. something now. I really do. But uh, without further ado, let's let's do some aviation news. What do you think? Let's do it. Stand by for news. Well, let's start off with this news item. Uh, everybody's been talking about this for like over a week now, I guess. It happened on the, well, almost a couple of weeks ago now. Um, this, of course, is the Alaska Air 737-9 MAX. Uh, yep, MAX is in the news again. Uh, they had a little issue with um, a rapid depressurization or decompression, however you want to call it. And uh, we have some live ATC audio to uh, go along with this incident. So let's take a listen. Departure Alaska 12 2, 2000, climbing 7000. Flash 1282, departure getting rear contact, climbing 15000. Climbing 15000, Alaska 1282. Flash 1282, contact Seattle Center, 128.15. Good. Climbing 815, good day, Alaska 1282. Climbing 15000. Flash 1282, Seattle Center, climb and maintain the level 230. I maintain 230, Alaska 1282. Uh, yeah, we're about to go down. I'm sorry, last aircraft say again? Last aircraft say again? It's on Alaska 1282, we're declaring emergency, we're descending down to 10,000. Alaska 1282, Roger, descend and maintain 10,000, and when able, uh, give me the nature of the emergency and your intentions. Hey, it's Portland, Alaska, or Seattle, Alaska. 1282, we just depressed us. We're declaring emergency. We need to descend down to 10,000. Alaska, 1282, Roger. Descending, maintain 1,000, 10,000. We're definitely going to take your nature of emergency and touch it. We just depressed us. Descending, maintain 10,000, and we need to return back to Portland. Roger, descending, maintain 1,000, and we're going to return back to Portland. Passengers, 
Fuel and passengers on board. Our fuel is 18,900 pounds, and we have 170, 177 passengers on board. Class 12 roger. And do you need time to burn off some food fuel before you land? Negative. Class 12 so you're ready for the approach now. You need 28 left, okay? We need about 10 minutes for Alaska 12 Class 12 roger. Just let me know when you're ready. We'll let you know, Alaska 12 Alaska 1282, can I just box around in that area and say where you're going? Alaska 1282, can I just back to you in a box pattern in that area? Do you want to stay on a heading for a longer period of time? Um, we can take a, can we, if we can take a couple delay head, delay vectors, we're going to get set up for the approach in. Alaska 1282, sounds good. Turn left heading 280, I'll just box around in this area here. Alright, 280 on the heading, thanks Alaska 1282. And Alaska Sorry to bother you again. Are you okay, Seven, or do you want lower? I'm Portland, Alaska, 12-82. We are ready for the approach, and we'd like to do the approach. Alaska, 12 can you get down from there, or do you want to give you a box around to get down? Yeah, we can get down, Alaska, 12 Alaska, 12 no problem if I clear you from there. It looks like you're on a work lesson. Even though I didn't tell you to intercept it. Uh, clear for the approach, Alaska, 12 They lived happily ever after. Well, some of them did anyway. Some of them were quite grumpy and taking people to court. <laughs> yeah, that's true. By the way, I, I guess I should mention that right now. Uh, I, I've talked uh, already about the um, incident, the uh, the water feature inside my kitchen area of my apartment, <laughs> and uh, you know yep. uh, the whole the whole issue regarding that, and the folks that came into uh, the company that came in to do the demolition. And then I guess it's going to be the same company that's going to do the repair work and replace the ceiling and all that kind of stuff. Um, they, uh, they were looking over here at this part of where I'm sitting in front of right now. I'm back in the apartment. Um, and, uh, looking at all the, um, electronic equipment and the speakers and the, the lighting and everything else. And, and they said, do you, you know, like, do you do a, podcast or youtube or something like that and i said i explained to them what we do and uh she said what kind of what kind of podcast i said aviation podcast she goes what do you know about the alaska you know thing and it and i said well you know just what you know basically what you the reports that we get in the news i guess you know it's funny people think nick that we have some kind of a special back door you know access oh, yeah, that, to information that, back channel yes. yeah, we don't <laughs> yeah. um well, I mean, I'm that, that very carries very... on into retirement as <laughs> I well. Guess so. it's, it's permanent. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Anyway, um, she goes. Well, my brother and his family were on that flight, like five rows uh, in front of Ooh. that mid cabin exit door plug that blew, and I went, "What? <laughs> Are you kidding me?" And wow. uh, she said, "Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the 
uh, iPhones that got or cellular phones. I'm not sure it was an iPhone or not. I think it was an iPhone. In fact, I think it's the one that survived the fall from 16,000 feet down to the ground and was still working just fine was his, um, his phone. And I think that, uh, he said that, uh, or she said that he said that his kids shoes had been taken off, but they got sucked out. And, oh, wow. uh, luckily the kids are still, still with them. Um, yeah. and, uh, they, so it was like a big explosion and and then all of a sudden just chaos um in there and uh i said could i interview him and she said well he's he's going to be a part of this um class action suit against alaska air and boeing and spirit and i went oh, okay so he's probably not going to be able to talk to me but yeah so yeah that's, that's a shame that would have been a, a quite a um fait accompli if you managed to uh inter- interview one of the passengers yeah yeah that would have been pretty pretty nifty um anyway so uh so they're taking off they're heading from uh portland oregon to ontario california and then going through about just shy of 15,000 feet, I believe, in their climb is when the PSID or the P, the cabin pressure went from 14, a little over 14 PSI to a little over nine, uh, indicating a, a loss of pressurization. And uh, they ended up, the apogee, I guess, of their, uh, of their climb was about 16,300 before they started going back down. And then we just heard that conversation with air traffic control and the coordination getting them down to the to the airport and runway um and of course at this point you know the the pilots have no idea what's going on other than there's some kind of a big hole in the fuselage uh which is true um let's see let me read a little bit from the um aviation herald uh on january 8th 2024 the NTSB reported in their last media briefing on site that according to the flight data recorded, the aircraft was climbing through 14830 uh, at 271 knots when the cabin pressure reduced from 14.09 to 11.64 and the cabin altitude 10,000 foot warning activated. Second later, the master caution activated and the cabin pressure fell to 9.08 PSI at about 14,850 MSL which would probably be about the right pounds per square inch at that altitude. So at this point, they're pretty much depressurized. Uh, 18 seconds later, the master caution deactivated. The aircraft stopped the climb at 16,320. About 82 seconds after the pressure fell to 9.08 PSI at 276 knots indicated. The selected altitude changed from 23,000 or flight level 230 to 10,000 feet. The aircraft began a left turn. The aircraft descended through 10, five point, uh, about five and a half minutes after the pressure dropped. The cabin altitude warning ceased when the cabin pressure increased to 10.48. And the aircraft returned to Portland to landing on runway 28 left. No one amongst the crew knew that the cockpit door was just, dis- yeah, so the cockpit door, this is one of those things that uh, I don't know if you were scratching your head about this one, Nick, or not, but I certainly was because you know, since 9-11, we've had these reinforced doors installed, uh, terror, terrorist-proof doors, I guess. Um, and these doors, I don't know what your Airbus door was like, but our doors have these blowout panels. 
they indicate they told us that the reason for these blowout panels is that you have a rapid decompression and you want to equalize the pressure between the cockpit and the cabin. And so in this case, the 737-9 Max door flew open. And the like Boeing and all the officials seemed to think like, well, that's what it's supposed to do. And all, all of us pilots are going, huh? Well, no one told us that the door is going to come flying open in a rapid D. Yeah, the same would have happened on my cop because, you know, the, the whole bottom half of the door has got a big reinforced a hatch which is supposed to open in the event of a decompression to right. equalize pressure. So, uh, yeah, we I would have expected that to blow out, not right. the entire door to bang open. I'm wondering if it's one of these situations where well, that's really what's supposed to happen. They're going to go, okay, I'll well, just say that that's the yeah, way it was designed. <laughs> and we're going to go ahead and put it in the manuals. <laughs> yes. I, I'm still not convinced that this is really the way these darn things are designed. Uh, but anyway, that was one of those things that really kind of got my attention. I went, say what? Let me re- read that again. Anyway, um, so let me get No, back. I just assumed they didn't adopt the the panel, the blowout panel design. I, I just when I read that, I just assumed that oh mm-hmm. they've designed the door the door to be blowable open. But that kind of defeats the object of having a uh, really secure door if you <laughs> just with a big uh pull you can get it open. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I, again, I, I, I look forward to hearing more about this this feature. Um, so again, uh, in the, uh, in the narrative, Boeing is going to make changes to the manuals regarding this cockpit door designed to open in case of a rapid decompression. Okay. All passenger oxygen masks deployed as designed, but a number were later stowed back into their car- compartments. When the auto pressurization light came on, on January 3rd and January 4th. Okay. So before this incident, a couple of days before there were a couple of write-ups and a couple of instances where, the, the the crews of those flights received um, an auto pressurization light coming on. Uh, they did not need to go into manual pressurization mode. They just switched the cabin pressure controller, and that that happens. That's happened to me several times in my career. Where yeah. you look I was going to ask you if you think that's related. I don't think so. I think it just happens to be coincidental. Myself, yeah, but is that, that what that's you what I would have said because we're 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 talking a, a structural component of the fuselage and the pressurization controller fault uh, mm-hmm. or fault with that, and they're really not related. Uh, they are kind of because obviously you get a hole in your fuselage, you it's going to affect your pressurization, but it does it wouldn't bring up a warning of uh, that requires a, a reset or a recycle of the pressurization controllers. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think it just, it's like one of those things like it's just throwing everybody off a little bit because it has something to do with pressurization. And this yeah, was a depressurization. Or a, so did they find the door, Jeff? Uh, they did find the door, Liz. <laughs> Where was it? Well, the door was in these trees that you're showing a picture of right now. I be I don't know. Is she leading the witness, Nick? Yeah, I think she might be. Yeah. Yeah. I'd put um, your wig on and tell her to hush up. Yeah, okay. Uh so uh let's see. Oh, let's continue. It fell out the tree. Yeah, oh look at that. It's on the ground. Uh looks like it's it's intact. Uh school teacher and his students were a hit Bob. at school today when they discovered the door plug. The uh, the school teacher's name is Bob, did you say? 
Yes, Bob. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, the NTSB is particularly looking at the bottom hinge fitting and large spring there. A plastic window frame as well as a headset was also found. The right-hand door plug was found entirely without discrepancies. The door plug, no door installed, is put into place using 12 stop pads. Four bolts would then be engaged to keep the door plug in place. However, the plug translated upwards, disengaging all 12 of those stop bars. Uh, the four bolts have not been found, as, and as far as I know, they still haven't been found. Uh, there is no information whether they were present or not yet. This is going to be the subject subject of examination at the labs. And then, yeah, I must admit, I find it a bit, a bit confusing when they call them plug-type doors because in that you imagine that the whole side of the door fits into a hole like a cork in a bottle and you can't push it all the way through. It literally plugs in. That's what I thought in, too. <laughs> yeah. In reality, of course, it's not like that at all. They've, they've got some protuberances on the fuselage and matching ones on the door. And if you line them up, then the door can't go through the hole. But if you move that a door up or down a bit until those are no longer lined up, then there's a, not much to stop it from going straight through. Uh, so that's the situation they're in. And those um, those uh, bolts, uh, their, their purpose was to make sure that the uh, the the um, guides, the, the locations of these uh, metal uh, plugs, uh, remained matched up so that uh, the door physically couldn't move. But, uh, you know, I it worries me a bit because uh, what would make that door go up and down? Well, a bit of a hard landing, a bit of a jolt, a bit of turbulence. Uh, and if, uh, if the bolts that maintain it in the correct position aren't fitted or are loose, then, you know, this is what could happen. Terrifying, really. It is. It is. Liz was showing us a, a pic of the um, of the door, and uh, she's about to show us again. Yeah, so just six points on either side of the uh, door opening there uh, is where those stops are. Twelve stops complete, and then just two bolts, uh, two at the top and two at the bottom in those hinge springs. And again, they're not sure if the bolts were actually there or they were broken or or what. They're still looking for the bolts, I guess, to, to see. And maybe they'll be able to tell based on the um, the bolt holes, you know, whether there was something in there or not. Yeah, but, hopefully there are some witness marks on uh, the, the stop pads uh, on the door and the fuselage to indicate uh, that it had been dragged, moved under pressure or whatever. So hopefully they'll have some idea. But, um, yeah, it's... Uh, the, it, the, <laughs> I hope to heavens uh, they discovered that it was just uh, you know a fault in the in the type of metal used in the bolt or something. But my gut tells me that this is probably an assembly problem. Uh, well, the good thing is that there were no other airplanes with this problem at all after they did. Oh wait, hang on. <laughs> no, on the 9th of uh, January, Alaska reported a number of their. B-39M aircraft showed loose parts during the inspections following the door plug separation. And then some other airlines also checked their 737 MAX 9s, and they also found some some loose uh, 
uh, bolts. Yeah, and so it fittings. sounds like they might have a quality control issue at the manufacturer, which is a subcontractor uh, to Boeing. Uh, Spirit Aviation. Aero Systems, I think. Yeah, Aero Systems. Aero Systems, thanks, uh, yeah. Um, but, you know, they're, they're the ones that Boeing entrusted to do this job and uh, you know so that I and Boeing has this name on the side of the airplane so I think they're gonna take the uh, you know carry the can for this one um, interestingly uh, it's pr probably worth explaining what this uh, door did plug did because um, it it was it's basically a semi-permanent part of the fuselage. It's not designed to be used as a door at all. The aircraft has the capability of taking more passengers than this one was configured for. And when you exceed a certain number, it's usually fit about 50 passengers per emergency exit. When you exceed a certain number, you've got to have more emergency exits to ensure that people can get off in a hurry. Uh, and because they had limited the number of passengers that were going to be in this airframe, they didn't need those extra emergency exits. So they were effectively semi-permanently sealed. That was supposed to be. It was a seal that was put in, a plug that was put in at manufacture. And then um, the furniture, the inside um, covering of the fuselage uh, was put over the top of it. And it wasn't really... Uh, properly accessible f for maintenance or checking uh, because it was now considered, you know, like part of the fuselage. Yeah. Um, so as you just mentioned, um, the reason for this mid-cabin exit is because of the requirements from regulators of having a certain number of exits per passengers. Now, no, no one that operates the MAX 9 here in the United States is configured uh, to that over 200 passenger or at 200 and more passenger level. So not the high density setup, but the lower density seating. So uh, all the operators here in the US are using the door plug, not the actual door itself. Uh, but some carriers, including in Indonesians Lion Air and Corindon Dutch Airlines cram more than 200 seats in their MAX 9, so they must have extra emergency exits. So that's the reason for the variability, I guess. And then Micah made a good uh, point here earlier on. The question he has is uh, they use the same exact plug in the 737-900, yet there's no AD and they are not requiring inspections on that aircraft. Um, so that that is interesting. Are, are those fuselages uh, made of the same manufacturer? Yes. Same contract? Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Well, in that case, you do wonder why not. Yeah. Anyway, um, so maybe it's some kind of a new process uh, that has been implemented and is uh, is faulty. This new process, whether it be installation, whether it be you know QC uh, or whatever it is, something failed in the uh, the Funyuns. Definitely yeah, they, lined they up. They definitely lined up, didn't they? They did. Yep. Um, let's see. What else was I going to mention about this? Um, well, they're, they're grounded. The fleet's yeah, grounded. Yeah, the fleet's right grounded now. until they figure out what's going on and, and what the what the cause of this incident is and, and, and all the other how to get back airplanes here. that have these uh, loose um, fittings on their plug. Loose so, nuts. We don't like that. Um, yeah. No, yeah. It's not good to have loose nuts, for sure. Although the nuts, I don't think, are a problem in this case. Let's go to number two. Okay. Number, interesting too. Let's go to number two. That's what this show is. 
Um, all right. Oh, this is interesting. Now, Liz, how how long have we been holding this story before the? I know it was before this uh, door plug blowout weeks, thing. Maybe a couple hmm? of weeks. A couple of weeks. A couple maybe? of weeks. Okay, so maybe. we actually had this in our news lineup, uh, and then of course the door plug blew out in the uh, incident that we just talked about. Well, this is from SeattleTimes.com. Uh, let's see. Little noticed. Uh, the Federal Aviation Administration in December published a Boeing request for an exemption from key safety standards on the 737 MAX 7, the still uncertified smallest member of Boeing's newest jet family. So they were petitioning the FAA uh, for an exemption from key safety standards. Uh, Since August, earlier models of the MAX currently flying passengers in the U.S. have had to limit use of the jet's engine anti-ice system after Boeing discovered a defect in the system with potentially catastrophic consequences. The flaw could cause the inlet at the front end of the pod surrounding the engine, known as a nacelle, to break and fall off. Uh, In an August airworthiness directive, the FAA stated that debris from such a breakup could penetrate the fuselage, putting passengers seated at windows behind the wings in danger and could damage the wing or tail of the plane, which could result in lost control of the airplane. You know, think, remember the Southwest 7-3 that had the uh, uncontained engine failure and and yep. uh, killed yeah. that lady uh, sitting there at the, at the yeah. window? Absolutely. Um, Dennis Tager, a spokesperson for the Allied Pilots Association, the APA, the un- union representing... 15,000 American Airlines pilots said the flaw in the engine anti-ice system has given us great concern. He said the pilot procedure the FAA approved as an interim solution, urging pilots to make sure they turn off the system when icing conditions dissipate to avoid overheating that within five minutes could seriously damage the structure of the nacelle is inadequate given the serious potential danger. No kidding. I mean, I don't know how many times now your, your um, fleet that you flew ca- uh, Captain Nick Probably had like an automated system, right? That would just automatically. No, it didn't. Do- we, oh, it didn't. We you manually re- selected engine and oh. the ice. Yeah. So you know as well as I do. Of course, I'm sure you never did it, but we sometimes turn the anti ice on. You know, we're flying through some high cirrus or whatever. You know, and we'll put the, and then we'll forget that we have the anti ice on, and then you know, like half an hour later or whatever, you go, oh yeah, <laughs> we're in the clear, and we have been for the last twenty minutes. I guess we can turn that off now. Five minutes is nothing. Nothing. No, exactly right. Now that was, I, I, I can imagine people going, well, you know, you're the you're the very well trained pilots. How on earth do you not know that you've got the NEI system on and you that it's time to turn it off? Well, the answer is you've got a lot of things to do, and you know you tend to prioritize things. And banging the NEI on, yeah, I've done that now. Tick that box, mm-hmm. and now you've got some radio calls, and you've got a position report to make, and you've got. Uh, you know, someone comes in the flight deck to ask a question or delivering you your four course meal, your champagne. Yeah, exactly. I was <laughs> going to say you might have a medical emergency <laughs> yeah. on board that, that someone just said, oh, we've had a woman faint in the back. Yeah. And all these things can happen. And now your attention is diverted for a while. Five minutes, you're, you're quite right, is absolutely nothing. Eventually, you'll get round to doing a scan of the flight deck. And you'll go, oh, damn, look, the anti-ice is still on. Let's let's kill that. We've been out of icing for a little while now. It's very easy to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Luckily, the Airbus 
uh, used to give us a, a warning when it detected we were in ice. And if we left the anti-ice on and the ice was no longer detected, it would eventually come up with a warning saying uh, something like, uh, I, no ice detected or something. And that would give you the off. reminder that it was okay to turn it off. Yeah, but no, you've, you've just got to try and remember. And the fact that you've only got five minutes before you start damaging the engine cells, I think is, yeah, it is worrisome. That is no really kidding. worrisome. Well, they say that it's just a very small chance that that could happen. But any chance at all is too much of a chance. Well, it, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and you know, it, to me, it does seem a fairly simple thing to put a, a warning that comes up if you've left it on for too late or mm -hmm. for too long or just a reminder, you know, the anti-ice is still on, did you know? Uh, or, um, you're right, tie it to an automated system. So when your ice detectors say there's no ice, it turns off turns the off. engine anti-ice for you. Uh, you go, okay. Or fix whatever it is that's causing the yeah, thing to overheat it, yeah. and burn, you know, make the nacelle blow up. That's a much, nah, that's much too hard. Fix <laughs> <laughs> it? Yeah. What's that? Oh, exactly boy. right. No, yeah. that, that, that is a worry. Find a subcontractor uh, to blame it on. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, all the military airplanes I flew, none of them uh, – you had an anti-ice system turn on or off. I'm pretty sure they all just ran constantly all the time because they're military jets and no one gives two hoots. <laughs> they're tough as old boots and you don't worry too much about fuel consumption when uh, five seconds in reheat, that, that <laughs> negated any attempts to save fuel by turning the anti-ice off. Um, so, uh, you know, it wasn't until I came to Civvy Street that I have to start worrying about these things. And, of course, there's the, the question of, uh, you, you know, it's never a clear-cut thing when you're in or out of, of icing conditions because it could be very patchy cloud. You could be in and out and in and out. You could be drifting through the tops. Uh, you know, it, the temperature just could go up or down a degree, and you'd be, you'd be really worried turning these things off and on and off and on and off. Uh, yeah, terrible. All right. Our next news item is from cabinradio.ca. Uh, this is an update from an incident, or actually an accident, a crash, of a twin otter, uh, Air Tindy. Uh, and we talked about it on an earlier episode. And the update is, and we were, we were surmising that this crash. The before picture took place oh you're showing the before picture yeah okay um there's the after picture okay the after picture is uh <laughs> we just thought this was interesting it was just perched you know because we weren't sure exactly what happened they said they think they encountered a, a wide out situation um and then we see this picture of this airplane just precariously perched teetering. upon and teetering yeah that's a great word uh on this this bank and i'm thinking you know just a couple of feet lower, and everybody would have died. On it the, and it, it would, could have been so much worse. Oh, I, mean, I know. It's a pretty That's amazing. robust airframe, but um, yeah, it's it's literally on the like on the edge of. It's not really a cliff. It's kind of just a big snow bank or burr or hill or. I'm not entirely sure what's a happening lot of here, drifted but snow up yeah, there. drifting snow, um, kind of built up, and it's on the very edge of it. If you're not looking at pictures or video of this Incredible. but 
Um, very lucky um, for all those on board, by all accounts. Um, sounds like it was pretty horrendous weather conditions that they just managed to find themselves in. Yep. Now, I don't know. Do you yeah. think that it, it like landed beyond what we're seeing here and then just kind of started kind of ended up backwards and I, just about skidding off the or did I'm they actually sure. impact like I think this? they mm, I can't tell I mean, it's, a, it's a pretty so I, I don't know how you know fast they were flying at the time that airplane can fly pretty darn slow mm -hmm. um and it was on skis so it could have come to a stop pretty quickly um it's hard to tell from the picture it, it may have just been where they kind of you know happened to land or slid back just a bit if they were on, uh, I mean, it looks like a bit of a, a slant there at the top of that hill, but yeah. they're lucky they yeah. didn't continue off the edge of it. Hey, Liz. Yeah. Um, did we, when we first covered this, did we show that footage of the uh, C-130 crew jumping out the we back? We did not, no. That was really impressive. Fantastic. I don't know if you guys had a chance to look at that, but the uh, Canadian Air, it was a Canadian Air Force, right? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. That did, did the jump. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, we'll have the uh, link to that video in the show notes. At, at night into a blizzard? Yeah. In, at so they night, were jumping in a and with a lot of equipment, you know, up to 100 mm -hmm. pounds, like basically strapped to all the... Yeah, what did you think of that stuff? I mean, that I actually must haven't have been seen a... the video. Oh, um, But okay. I'm sorry, I, di I didn't actually realize there was video. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm impressed by that always. That takes a lot of skill and a lot of training and a lot of um, resources to make that happen. I think one of the uh, jumpers said that that was, and this person had been doing this for quite some time, and it was the most demanding and you know most difficult. I think they said most challenging jump in their career ever. Yeah, yeah. they'd flown up from Winnipeg, I think, to rest. Yeah, to do this rest. Anyway, so uh, yeah, well, uh, all that will be in our show notes if you want to check it out. So. Uh, they're still investigating what exactly happened, but it looks like they were just looking for, you know, a, a place to land. And uh, I guess they a place to ended land, up getting place to grow. in a little bit of uh, whiteout conditions. And uh, maybe they just lost track of their altitude or maybe they uh, maybe there was just no way to know exactly how high the, the snow drift was. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure on all those details, but I could definitely see based on the pictures that we're looking there looking at there that the conditions frequently are um less than ideal for flying. Yes. With all those snowdrifts. For sure. Okay. And they do say in this article that uh an initial an initial assessment by Air Tendi concluded that the crash was weather related. Yeah. If anybody was uh, wondering about that, <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> they're on top of it. <laughs> really? <Yeah>. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> Very insightful. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to this one. This is an interesting one for sure. Uh, it is a, uh, we're going to play this YouTube video. We also have some information from the uh, Air Safety Network. Uh, but the, the YouTube video from uh, Vass Aviation, which of course is, comprised of um, audio from liveatc.net and uh, this ha happened up in um, up in California uh, near uh, a place that uh, uh, Nick Camacho is familiar with yeah we've been waiting for him and uh, we've been kind of yeah waiting waiting for him to to be on the show with us for for us to play this so here we go I'm gonna Charlie Bravo, just departing San Luis Obispo, direct crave, uh, climbing through 1500 for 4000. 
Bay Barber Center Barber Departure Radar Contest. Let me maintain 8,000. Okay. Uh, Cessna 340, November 711, Charlie Bravo performing flight from San Luis Obispo to Sun Valley in... <laughs> never long enough for me to read. 71, Charlie and Bravo, verify you're on the Creek 3 departure. I should be going well left of course. Hi, yeah, we were a little left of course. I uh, just get an autopilot set up. Uh, we're at direct crepe uh, for 1, Charlie Bravo. 1, Charlie Bravo, thank you. Is that looking better for 1, Charlie Bravo? Never 1, Charlie Bravo, affirmative. Charlie Bravo, right turn, turn right immediately, heading 360. Uh, we're going to 360 right now for 1 Charlie Bravo. 1 Charlie Bravo, I recommend uh, disabling the autopilot flying aircraft yourself. Uh, we just picked it off for 1 Charlie Bravo. Low altitude alert, November 1 Charlie Bravo, altitude 6,300 to India, your area is 2,700, same tension. They're too low. November 1 Charlie Bravo, so let's heading 2 We're headed direct pounce rubble for 1 Charlie Bravo. Hmm? So I'm just going to... Bravo, uh, we're just having a little issue with the autopilot, but I just turned it off. Roger that for one Charlie Bravo. Uh, one Charlie Bravo, is uh, going to head back to slow. Is that okay with you? November 1, Charlie Bravo, flight heading 180 immediately. All right, 180 for 1, Charlie Bravo. November 7, 1, Charlie Bravo, are you able to maintain the VFR and uh, able to catch the IFR flight plan? You're well below the NDA. Okay, uh, we will have flow inside. I'm under the cloud bank for 1, Charlie Bravo. November 1, Charlie Bravo, low altitude alert. Altitude indicates 1,700. The NDA in your area is 4,000. Roger that. Uh, 17,000. And just give us one minute. We're climbing up for 1, Charlie Bravo. Charlie Bravo, maintain that present heading. Our safe climb is 2,700. Continue your climb. Charlie Bravo, Santa Barbara approach radio check. Uh, we got you. Loud and clear. 7-1, Charlie Bravo. Charlie Bravo, roger, and advise uh, when you have your intentions, please. Uh, roger that. I'm going to get set up here on the uh, GPS and uh, get this loaded up, and then uh, we'll take the uh, RNAV uh, 2-9 into slow. Number 1, Charlie Bravo, roger. Number 1, Charlie Bravo, I'd like to recommend uh, RNAV runway 1-1 since you're already set up. That's going to give you less time uh, in the air and we'll get you back uh, safe on the ground sooner. Are you able to accept RNAV runway 1-1? RNAV 1-1, yes, we will. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you can just give us some uh, vectors. Uh, that would be terrific for 1, Charlie Bravo. Number 1, Charlie Bravo, roger. Turn right, heading 290. 290, 1, Charlie Bravo. And uh, this is 7-1-1, Charlie Bravo. Uh, we're having some issues with our controls, and uh, I'd like to uh, declare an emergency at this time. 
Already Charlie Bravo, yes, sir. Emergency's already been declared for you. It's, uh, it's able to right now. 360, maintain 3,000. November 1, Charlie Bravo and uh, Roger, what would you say intentions? What can I do for you? Good morning, Charlie Bravo. Charlie Bravo, I have you loud and clear. When your wings are level, and uh, turn left heading 070, I'm going to give you vectors direct to the San Luis Obispo Airport. Okay. Uh, I'm going to need to climb a little bit, but that's when we're having the problem. Good Charlie Bravo, altitude, your discretion. Uh, when able, fly heading 070. 070. One Charlie Bravo. Looks like he's over the coast now. So. Number one, Charlie Bravo. If you maintain a heading of zero nine or zero, that'll keep you uh, above the terrain. The uh, emergency altitude there is one thousand two hundred. Roger that. Okay. Number one, Charlie Bravo. Can you say your current altitude, please? Fourteen hundred for one, Charlie Bravo. One, Charlie Bravo. Roger. If able, turn twenty degrees right. Twenty degrees right. One, Charlie Bravo. Number one, Charlie Bravo. Turn an additional ten degrees right. Ten degrees right. One, Charlie Bravo. Number one, Charlie Bravo, are you in BFR uh, conditions at this time? November 711, Charlie Bravo, are you in BFR conditions? Uh, no, we are in IMC, ma'am. Charlie Bravo, Roger, turn right, turn right, heading uh, zero 06, or correction, turn right, heading 100. All right, 100 for one, Charlie Bravo. November 1, Charlie Bravo, I do have an alternate airport for you, if that would work better. Oceano Airport uh, is at 1 o'clock, about 6 miles. Uh, I do not have a uh, current weather for them. I can oh. or you would like to maybe go there instead. Uh, Oceano is not going to work for this plane, ma'am. November 1, Charlie Bravo, Roger. November 1, Charlie Bravo, and you are entering uh, an emergency altitude of 1,200. Your present altitude, 1,600. You should be safe there if you're able to maintain that. I'm not able to maintain that, oh, Charlie Bravo. November 1, Charlie Bravo, I think I stepped on you there. Maintain uh, that present altitude, that altitude if able. The emergency altitude in that area is 1,200. Roger, we can maintain that for one, Charlie Bravo. Number one, Charlie Bravo, Roger. And the San Luis Obispo Airport is about 10 o'clock. I'd like to direct you north if you can accept that heading. Uh, roger that. Where would you like me to go? Number one, Charlie Bravo, turn left heading 010, and then out of that turn, the San Luis Airport will be 12 o'clock, 5 miles. Okay, 010 for one, Charlie Bravo. Number one, Charlie Bravo, and San Luis Obispo Airport is 12 o'clock, 3 miles. One Charlie Bravo, the tower is looking for you. They don't have you in sight yet. They are reporting a scattered layer at 2,000 feet. Okay, scattered 2,000 feet. One Charlie. One Charlie Bravo, San Luis Obispo Airport, 12 to 1 o'clock, one mile. One Charlie Bravo, Roger. The emergency altitude in that area is 1,200. One Charlie Bravo, and verify you still are in IMC conditions. Number one, Charlie Bravo, advise when you get the field in sight, and you are clear to land on any runway at San Luis Obispo Airport. Their wind is currently calm. Number one, Charlie Bravo, the airport is behind you at this time. You can either make a, uh, a right or a left turn, 180, and uh, that should line you back up with the airport. Number one, Charlie Bravo, if able, maintain at or above 800 feet. He's down at 600. November 1, Charlie Bravo, coming out of that turn, San Luis Obispo Airport, 11 o'clock, one mile. Okay. Number 1, Charlie Bravo, you're clear to land uh, any runway, your choice, San Luis Obispo Airport. Crash 21, um, the aircraft is currently just 
west of the airport in the clouds. He's having control issues. He's just trying to find the airport and land. He's not even on my frequency right now. He's on Santa Barbara's frequency, so we're just keeping him there. Um, I'll keep you advised. I do not know how many persons or fuel he has on board. Number one, Charlie Bravo, clear to land at San Luis Obispo Airport. Charlie Bravo, you said you're not seeing the airport? Number one, Charlie Bravo, table fly heading 110. We got it. And uh, bring you back in for another uh, attempt to climb and maintain uh, 1,000 at table. Maneuver as necessary, you're still clear to land. Okay, we're still going to turn just so we can make a nice approach for one Charlie Bravo. One Charlie Bravo, that's approved. Remain this frequency. Number one, Charlie Bravo, the San Luis Tower does have eyes on you. And San Luis Tower, this is 711 Charlie Bravo. 711 Charlie Bravo, San Luis Ground. Uh, we don't need any of the emergency uh, services. The autopilot just uh, went out of whack on us for 1 Charlie Bravo. We're in 1 Charlie Bravo, Roger. Where are you going to park? Oh, uh, we're going to uh, site November for uh, 1 Charlie Bravo. Uh, 1 Charlie Bravo, Roger. Turn left at Lima and taxi uh, to site November. Okay, uh, left at Lima and then November uh, for 1 Charlie Bravo. Stop, guys. All right. Uh, what happened here? Uh, and have you learned any information about this since since it happened, Camacho? I haven't. Okay. Mm-mm. Um. Yeah. So we have to make some guesses. Uh, sounds to me like, I, and I don't know. Do we know if this happened at night, or was it during the daytime? I think it was I, during the day. Okay. So that says, accident report says C. 10 o'clock. So I assume that means 10 o'clock local time, like so oh, okay. 10 o'clock. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, so, uh, you know, it, it, what it thought the pilot was reporting was that there was an issue with the autopilot. Mm-hmm. Um, for whatever reason, it sounds like they were not able to get it turned off or disconnected and that they were having control issues related to that. Um, you know, I don't know in that airplane how readily accessible the, circuit breaker might be for the autopilot um but for whatever reason they were having a hard time getting it to to disengage is what it sounds like to me and having control issues related to it trying to still um give poor information to the aircraft yeah uh i think i would agree with that i don't know how much more we need to (laughs) go into that we had a pretty long discussion about that a couple of weeks ago with the uh bonanza incident mm-hmm. in tennessee um to me that one sounded a little bit different we're not understanding how the autopilot worked this sounds more like there was a an issue with getting the autopilot to disengage potentially maybe Man, yeah. i feel like that's the single most important part of the autopilot that you need right. to understand know how to turn it off like if there's a singular operation of the autopilot if you're like i can only know one thing about the autopilot It's got to be how to turn it off. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Because it's like a little robot trying to kill you. (laughs) Yeah. If it's doing things (laughs) you don't want to do. What's it doing now? Yeah. Um, At at first, I have to be honest with you. I, I, when I first listened to these uh, live ATC.net recordings, I thought that he was just trying to use the autopilot no matter what, even if it wasn't acting the way it was supposed to. 
And then the control issues thing, I don't know. I, I, I guess I didn't um, put the two together, but then when I just listened to it again, as you both have listened to it and, and surmised that that control issue problem must have something to do with the fact that the autopilot is just not relenting uh, or releasing the controls. I mean, and the controller was pretty explicit, and I, I don't remember what the pilot um, said in response to it or acknowledged, but she said just turn the autopilot off yeah. and hand fly the airplane. Very good controller. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you don't hear that very often, controllers telling people what, you know, like turn the autopilot off and hand fly the airplane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was I was kind of surprised, but I was I was actually pretty happy pleasantly about surprised. that. Yeah, yeah pleasantly mm-hmm. surprised. Yeah, um, yeah but, you know, in this case, good outcome, though. I, I doubt we'll hear anything more about it because it was a good outcome. You know, they were able to land safely at the end of the day. Um, interesting that they were, you know, just watching the um, uh, the video overlay there. It looked to me like their altitude readout was like they were down to 400 feet and the reported cloud layer was scattered 2,000. Yeah. They were basically over the top of the airport and they couldn't see it at first. That's why I was wondering if it was at night or something. Yeah, but I, yeah, I, I'm not I, sure. Um, but it was during the you know, day. They were dealing uh, with Camacho's running. You know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a strange one to me. Like, were they just yeah. completely not looking in the right area? Maybe you know, and and I mean, you, you know, you you. The only thing I can think of is you've increased your you've become task saturated with trying to deal with a problem, and that just makes it that much harder to focus on basics, right? Yeah, I, yeah, and like going back to the controls thing, you know, that's a, it's a, um, cabin class twin, so it's a higher performance GA airplane, but it's still a older um, cable operated airplane. You know, I'm just trying to think through um, the types of control issues you would have that would resolve themselves, right? Like obviously you could have a mechanical issue where something physically breaks, but then it seems like it would be an issue all the way down to the ground. And Mm -hmm. it seems like these guys got whatever they were dealing with sorted out, especially when you look at the very end of that flight, when like Steph said, they were maneuvering around the airport, a couple hundred feet off the ground, fairly close to the airport. Um, So uh, that seems um, curious to me and would lead me to believe that it's an autopilot issue, either an autopilot you know, like we were mentioning, like struggling to get the autopilot turned off or maybe trying to troubleshoot the autopilot and, and keep it on. <clears throat> um, but the other thing that was kind of interesting to me, I'm going to share this real quick, is this is a topic. So I, for anybody that doesn't know, I lived in San Luis Obispo for about 10 years and I flew out of there a bunch um, and got pretty familiar with that area. And I would think as someone who learned to fly in the Midwest, and as soon as you take off, you're safe to fly like basically straight and level immediately for hundreds of miles mm-hmm. and never hit anything. Um, out on the coast of California, it was way different. So it was it was uh, a new experience for me, but got to know the geography and everything um, pretty well because was, that was my main base of operation. And this airplane was based in slow. It wasn't a transient airplane that was coming in for one trip this airplane according to the stuff that i've read was based there the owners were based somewhere locally so it it probably goes out and about a lot but i would think that most of the guys who are operating the airplane would be familiar with the area um 
This is a uh, topographical map of San Luis Obispo. And if you look, the airport is, you know, down kind of at like four o'clock from the center of it. And what you will notice is they're taking off runway 29. It is like a valley all the way out to the coast. So there's really no altitude issues all the way out to the coast. The only place you have altitude issues is if you turn north, northeast. And if I had any sort of like issue or control issue or anything, if I have airplane performance issues, if the airplane's not climbing, the first thing that would go through my head is I'm almost to the ocean. Like all I got to do is Mm -hmm. make it out to the coastline and then the uh, terrain is very um, predictable. It's very low. That would give me some more time to troubleshoot or figure out what's going on. What's the altitude of the uh, water out there over the ocean? <laughs> depends on if it's windy. <laughs> what's the, what are the swells? Depends. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm oh, wait a minute. Guy. It's sea level. <laughs> sea yeah. level. Zero. So the airport's 212, 212 feet, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look, it's blue. So it's like, Pretty two, it's like 300 feet or less if you basically fall. So the Crepe 3 departure is a straight out on 2-9 two, on two to about... Uh, that little bay area. So basically like the coastline. So you're going to straight out on the coastline and then they send you wherever you want to go. Right. This guy turned basically the worst possible direction. To the right. turn. Yes. Um, which is the thing that got me a little confused because um, I, it just, I would think that for a pilot in that area, especially if you're in the clouds and you're getting task saturated, and something happens and you're fighting with the airplane, I would think, all right, number one thing is keeping the airplane level. Number two thing is keeping the airplane in the air. And to me, that would mean, that would mean, yeah, turn it to the coast, get to the coast as soon as possible, or establish a straight climbing, a, a straight and not straight and level, but a straight heading climb in a direction that I'm fairly comfortable with. So the fact that this guy had a probably had an initial encounter, whether it was like an autopilot failure, whether the autopilot was turning him directions he didn't want to go, probably scared him, could have scared him immensely. But the airplane ends up kind of in those, you know, near those reddish splotches uh, on this map uh, to the northwest of San Luis Obispo. And then he turns the airplane south and flies towards another smaller mountain range before he finally gets to the coast. So that was just something I thought was kind of interesting for a um, a locally based pilot. And like we've said before, we don't know what happened. Um, there may be even more mitigating circumstances that I'm not taking into account, but that was just uh, something that was the first thing that crossed my mind is, man, if I was having trouble keeping the airplane upright, I would, I would want to get it in a, safest the safest location possible and for me it seems like that would be either get it to the water or get it turned around and you know fly the airplane right back in and that was the other thing i looked at is obviously you could turn and fly the airplane right back down the valley and land one one and that's the the low altitude the precision approach is all fly one one as you can see because the altitude is lower but Mm -hmm. the winds were i think one two zero at 12 so not an insignificant tailwind for a big airplane but also it's a airport with a 6,000 or 6,500 foot runway and 
uh, engineered stopping material at each end. And but the but the, those are details that I'm sure we're not running through his mind with everything no. he's dealing with. So Oceano, she pointed out, was a possible alternate. Is, is that just too short of a? Uh, yeah, Oceano's twenty three hundred feet. Okay. Um, so like I wouldn't take uh, my bonanza in there without being um, feeling comp- competent and proficient. Okay. Um, I don't think a twin would probably be able to get stopped there no matter what. And then the other question I had for you, Nick, is it seems like that controller, very sharp controller, by the way, and the way she handled this was, I think, you know, stellar. Um, but she noticed almost immediately that he was not tracking the way he was supposed to. Um, is is it because it looked just to me like he was just going slightly to the right of the yeah. departure runway heading? Uh, but she, I mean, it seems to me, uh, maybe it's just because of the, uh, the, the depiction of the radar on the, the simulated radar depiction that we see in this video just didn't have it exactly what he was doing. Maybe he was much more, uh, he was deviating much more from the track that he was supposed to be flying. But, uh, I don't know. Is that, it's just a standard departure procedure. It's just like basically runway heading until you get up, uh, up near the coast. Yep. Okay. Not well, not runway heading, but direct to that point, that that fix, I guess. I'm sorry, Liz. What? Micah has a question. Oh, Micah has a question. Uh, no, uh, now, now I know. I uh, now I know yeah. we live in a GPS map world these days, and that applies to aircraft as well. But if you're flying in a new area, don't you study the sectionals anymore before you go? Well, a smart, wise pilot would do that. Yes, Micah. Uh, but oh, you mean like the actual paper sectionals? I don't know. Are they still? Are are they even required anymore, um, Steph, Nick? No. Okay. Mm-mm. You can have digital. Um, but if it's a place, so like Nick was saying, this is, um, we think this was a local or a pilot local to the area, so had familiarity with it. Um, yeah. But yeah, if you're going to a new place, especially a place that has terrain differences than you're used to, um, I think any um, prudent pilot is going to to be aware of what those uh, considerations are in advance of launching on the flight. Yeah. I'm wondering if this maybe has something to do with an over-reliance and on uh, auto-flight systems, perhaps. I don't know. Um, that might be part of it. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure um, all the details. I I don't yeah. think we'll find it out. Yeah, case, that's the sad honest, thing. But... We're not really going to be able to figure it out no. exactly what happened, which I think a lot of people could learn a lot from. But it is what it is, I guess. Don't you like that saying? <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> all right. Anything else to add? No. Okay. Um, let's nope, move to H uh, from Newsweek.com. Um, a medical doctor has received support online after sharing he had refused to help a passenger in need of clinical attention on a long-haul flight. Uh, medical, let's see. Well, that was, we're seeing that again. Okay, we could have. <laughs> ah, there's a lot of repetition in this article. There is. Yeah, there's another couple. If it seems like you read it before, it's probably because you read okay. it before. The 30-year-old man opened up about the experience on social media eight days ago. Of course, it was longer than that, but uh, we're now just getting... Sometime like mid-December, probably. Okay. 
He wrote that the alcoholic drinks he had enjoyed a few hours earlier were the reason why he then backed out of the midair emergency. Quote, I'm working as an internal medicine hospitalist at a major hospital, the man wrote. Uh, recently, I was on a long-haul international flight. Usually, I sleep on flights, but this was during my waking hour, so I decided to spend my time enjoying the in-flight entertainment and free drinks. I'd already been drinking even before the flight while I was in the lounge, the doctor added. I was uh, trying to watch a movie and enjoy my drinks when an, when an announcement was made asking if there was a doctor on the flight. Normally, I would present myself to the cabin crew and help out, but after several hours of boozing, I was pretty drunk. I was not able to think clearly and probably uh, would have done more harm than good. I didn't react to the announcement at all. I was, uh, let's see, the doctor uh, had shared further down in the post that the female passenger sitting next to him had tapped him on the shoulder to alert him to the announcement from the galley. Hmm, I'm wondering how she knew he was a doctor. How did she know? <laughs> well, I was, I was totally envisioning airplane where he's just got the stethoscope <laughs> in his ears and relaxing. <laughs> That's got to be well, stewardess, I think the gentleman next to me is a doctor. <laughs> or, or it could be that doctors are much like pilots and they'll let you know. They're, yeah. they're probably going to let you know. They're, and, and just think yes. about Steph. She's both a doctor and a pilot. Oh, my gosh. Oh, <laughs> I don't even know what to lead with. <laughs> I'm an Iron Man. <laughs> I'm an Iron Man. <laughs> yeah, that's another one. <laughs> Still wearing a little bib, you know, from the Iron Man competition. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, so uh, so we, we, he tells us that the female passenger sitting next to him had tapped him on the shoulder to alert him to the announcement. The doctor had simply replied to her that another passenger would be able to help or that the cabin crew would receive instructions from a medical team on the ground. Uh, the Reddit user wrote about the woman's reaction to his decision to give the emergency a miss. She said, I was an unbelievable a something, and that if the passenger died, it was my fault, <laughs> the doctor added. Um, so uh, he said, I responded that just because I'm a doctor doesn't mean that I'm on call 24-7 to provide medical care on demand. I work when I'm at the hospital. Outside, I'm just like anyone else, and I'm entitled to drink and relax. She had a disgusted look on her face and didn't want to talk to me after that, he wrote. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, anyway, uh, the, the gist is that uh, maybe it was a, a legitimate um, reason for him not to engage in this situation based on his consumption of alcoholic beverages. I think that maybe his communication skills weren't the best with his Female, well, uh, maybe not after a couple of beverages, they weren't the best either, but yeah. that's all the more reason why he should not have been assisting in that emergency. All right. So, yeah, Steph, so you're you're the doctor and you've been in situations on aircraft. You do, mm. do a lot of flying, uh, both yeah. flying the airplane and also as a passenger. And a lot of drinking. And so you've, doing... been, <laughs> you've been in situations where you've been called to, to help out. And uh, so that's why we obviously wanted uh, to cover sure. this article while you're sure. on. Yeah. No, I, I think this physician was 100% in the right to not offer assistance or services. He recognized that he was um, impaired by alcohol, um, not in, you know, he's not at work, not on duty. And actually, 
um, in the United States, at least, that's uh, there's no legal obligation to respond to an in-flight emergency. There's no duty to treat in the air. If you don't want to be involved, you don't have to act. That's actually um, how our legal system is set up here. Apparently, that differs in other countries. So I guess if you're going to be traveling in other countries and you're a physician, maybe very much think twice about having multiple beverages either before your flight or after your flight. I'm not sure which countries those are. Um, but as far as I can tell, in the United States, if it's a U.S. carrier, there's no legal obligation to act, even if there's a request put out for assistance, um, precisely for this reason, um, because it could be a number of things. You know, it, you're you're traveling, you're not expecting to be at work, you're not expecting to be sharp, you're not expecting to um, have to call on or rely on your skills to um, to be of assistance. Um, there's a little bit more here. There's This all kind of goes back to the, there's an Aviation Medical Assistance Act in the U.S. from 1998. Um, a lot of it outlines, you know, a lot of um, doctors are more worried about if I do assist and, you know, there's a poor outcome to the situation, whether that's in my control or not, um, you know, am I, am I liable? Am I, um, you know, am I at fault? And a lot of that falls under the Good Samaritan laws, which provide immunity um, from liability for people who assist others in good faith. You know, and that means that it's within your scope of care to be doing that. So if you volunteer for an emergency and you show up and it's something that's way outside your scope of care, you should actually not participate in that, um, in, in providing assistance there. But it also highlights a couple of um, other instances. So Exceptions to the immunity from Good Samaritan laws, acting outside your scope of training, also acting while impaired by drugs or alcohol, or acting with gross negligence. So if you have deliberate actions or extreme carelessness that would result in um, injury or harm. So those are the three places where you would not be protected by Good Samaritan laws. So 100% this, this physician was correct to not um, respond to that request for assistance. And he's right, you know, on, on commercial um, airlines in this country, um, and Jeff can probably talk to this uh, or speak about this a little bit more. There is assistance from, um, you know, ground-based medical crews that have aviation um, uh, medical experience. So th dealing with things that are occurring um, on an aircraft or at altitude or things that you might not think of, even um, if you're a highly experienced physician and you're used to dealing with things that happen, you know, when you're when you're on land. Yeah. I think most of the big airlines around the world have systems similar to what Delta was using. Um, and uh, it was the goat. It was like, that's what you do. If you have the time to do it, if you're doing a short flight and, or you're at the end of a long flight, you're already uh, on your arrival procedure and going to a different uh, airport would actually mean a longer flight time. Uh, then, you know, you can disregard contacting, uh, you know, like StatMD or one of these one mm -hmm. of these uh, companies uh, to get their um, approval or get their advice. Um, and then one of the tough things, I think, and fortunately, I, I never had to run into this myself. Uh, the um, but I have heard it happening where the doctor or medical person assisting uh, on the airplane itself makes a recommendation that no, we have to get on the ground now, and then the people that you're contacting via uh, in-flight radio, et, et cetera, who have the expertise in this, 
say, no, it's not something that you need to divert for. You can continue. Unless, of course, your co-pilot uh, is a FFDO and he has a pistol pointing it at your head and, and threatening your life. No, I'm just kidding. That's another story. <laughs> we'll cover that. Uh, yeah, we'll probably cover that in part, part two. two. Um, oh, but uh, anyway, um, yeah, so yeah, yeah, and, that's and, the standard and, thing. And having assisted with some in-flight um, emergencies of varying degrees of severity, um, even if there's a physician to assist on board or a medical uh, professional. So it's not always a physician, but if there's, you know, a nurse on board or physician assistant, there can be a variety of medical providers who might respond um, to offer assistance if they're qualified and capable and feel comfortable doing so. Um, even in those cases, um, the flight crew is going to be in touch with the the service that's offered by the company as well, because those folks have a little bit more insight uh, into ways to deal with problems in the air. Right. Deanna, a longtime community member, uh, is a veterinarian, and uh, she uh, they put, or she puts, and put my prefix. So I she guess said, she I'm does I'm a veterinarian. That. I put my prefix as doctor on my flight to Sydney. The flight attendant greeted me as doctor, and I was terrified they'd ask me with, to help with a medical emergency. I'm not qualified. <laughs> well, if the medical emergency involved uh, one of somebody's... Uh, uh, what do they call those animals? Uh, uh, emotional support emotional animal. Support animal. <laughs> I guess you could help, right? Sure. Uh, interesting. Sure. Thank you, Deanna. Um, thank I, you, Steph, uh, for um, kind of talking us through that. And Yeah, I do think it's interesting that um, I think that article was from Newsweek, and their expert that they consulted for information on that was just a travel agency owner. Um, but oh, really? all this information is easily available if you search for it um, regarding what? the legal status of these things in the United States. Um, oh, yeah, that's too hard. <laughs> I'm on. sure she's. I'm sure she actually probably did the research for Newsweek. <laughs> I'm sure she did. <laughs> yes, maybe. Mm-mm. No. Okay. Uh, so we're going to move to this item D, uh, D from FoxBusiness.com. Uh, this was sent to us uh, from the Sultan of Wings. I don't know if he's here with us today, uh, Brad and and uh, Charlotte. Um, let's see, uh, former Delta first officer who. Uh, first of all, I have to say this article, uh, written by somebody at Fox Business News, who I believe uh, got this from the AP, the Associated Press. I'm not sure who's at fault here, but they don't quite understand the difference between. Um, a co-pilot and uh, and a captain. And so they think that you have two pilots in the cockpit, so they're co-pilots. So technically speaking, yes. Because <laughs> they cohabit. Exactly. So we're not, you know. <laughs> they like cooperate. Nick and I are co-hosts, and uh, we have other co-hosts that aren't here with us on part two. But it's not the same thing. You know, co- co-pilot. Um yeah, anyway, so uh, I, I had to make all – you see all these little brackets, Nick, in this whole article? <laughs> I did I've, wonder where they came from. Yeah, that's me going like, no, that's that's not right. Uh, you don't understand you know, the roles of the two pilots that are in this airplane apparently. Anyway, I'm going to read it, You know, hopefully corrected. Uh, a former Delta first officer who allegedly threatened to shoot his captain midair claims misunderstanding. I mean the, the article read at first – a former Delta pilot threatened to shoot his co-pilot, co-pilot midair claims misunderstanding. I'm thinking, wait a minute. I thought it was the co-pilot that had the gun threatening the captain. And then I finally realized that the person writing this doesn't get it. Um, okay. 
lawyers for the former pilot, Jonathan Dunn, 42 years old, called it a misunderstanding, while prosecutors described the allegations as a grave uh, offense. Former Delta pilot Jonathan Dunn's threat to shoot his captain while the plane was in the air was a misunderstanding, but prosecutors described the heated argument during a 2022 flight from Atlanta to Salt Lake City as a grave offense. The two sides sparred in a Utah courtroom Thursday. This is a couple of weeks ago, I think. During Dunn's first federal court appearance since his October 2023 indictment for threatening his captain after he suggested diverting the flight for a passenger's medical emergency, Dunn allegedly responded with a slew of menacing remarks, and the unnamed co-pilot, Captain, thought Dunn would use his gun to relieve him of command of the aircraft. Prior to this incident, the TSA authorized Dunn to carry a gun on board, part of the Federal Flight Deck Officer Program, FFDO program here in the U.S. The midair altercation also cost cost Dunn his job with Delta, which said he is no longer with the airline after a grand jury indicted him on a federal charge of interfering with a flight crew. He could face up to 20 years in prison. The trial date has tentatively, tentatively set for March 20th. Dunn admitted to making remarks, but said they were intended as a joke, according to a report by the AP. The former pilot's lawyer, John Huber, said after the court appearance, his client doesn't have a criminal history and shouldn't be considered dangerous. With that said, Dunn said to uh, seem to recognize, this is the the paragraph that I think is pretty, pretty interesting. With that said, Dunn seemed to recognize, in hindsight, the gravity of his actions, telling Delta officials Quote, this could have been much worse. In hindsight, if I had been threatened, I would not be able to operate. So he's basically just making the case, I think, for the prosecution against him by that statement right there. Interesting. Mm. It could have been much worse. And he, too, would have been not able to operate if he had been threatened, (laughs) as he had threatened the captain. Okay. Wow. So... Interesting. They also go on to talk about um, Dunn is also an Air Force Reserve, or was, I guess, Air Force Reserve Lieutenant Colonel, who was demoted from his previous position for refusing the COVID-19 vaccine. And actually, it wasn't, he was brought up for not wanting to take the vaccine, but his demotion had was a, another matter that involved his leadership or lack of leadership or something else. So, uh, a lot of conflation here in this article and a lot of confusion Indeed. regarding roles of pilots and co-pilots and captains and first officers and all that kind of stuff. But there you go. Otherwise, Karen, very well written. Thank you. Karen has a question, Jeff. <laughs> oh, uh, let's see. Maine Marin says, if there's a first officer, is there a last officer? Yeah, I think that he he fills the bill. Oh for yeah, that. there certainly is. Yeah. <laughs> and Nigel's got the last comment. Oh, he's done for, according to Nigel. Oh, wow. oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh that deserves a, oh, uh, a rim shot, right? Yeah, here we go. That's awful. Found no, it. Don't don't encourage him. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. All right, what are you what are you saying? Jay, we do next. Jay. And Jay. Okay. Um, okay. So you remember the. Um, Siberian uh, or the Russian uh, Airlines. Uh, was it? Yeah. Uh, the boy that diverted with his gear down, not realizing that he would use so much fuel he couldn't make his destination. Because they didn't know that the gear was down, apparently. Yeah, because um, he 
Yeah, he hadn't worked out that the gear was still down, so he no. landed it in a field. Landed in a Siberian field in September of last year. Yeah, we thought it was a soy field, didn't we? Uh, no, that was a different no, that incident. Was another one. <laughs> oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, it was a soy field. <laughs> a soy field. Oh, gosh. Oh, right. Lord preserve me. Yeah. Anyway, so we were thinking, and I think that they said at first that they were going to do whatever they needed to do to get the thing ready to just take off from that field and fly it back. And uh, apparently they have made uh, the decision to um, scrap the airplane and just dismantle it for parts. Um, yeah, the Ural Airlines has been forced to pay the owner of the field a year's worth of rent while it dismantles the aircraft in the remote Siberian wilderness. And we think probably has something to do with the fact that, you know, the, the war between, uh, Russia and Ukraine and the lack of, of parts, you know, for these, uh, airliners is probably part of the problem here. They, if they could get these parts, they would probably do whatever they needed to do to fly the thing out of there. But I guess they decided, yeah, we can't. It would have been good for publicity. I, I'd have yeah. loved watching the video. Me too. Yeah. That would have been cool. So it's time for us to go to Getting to Know Us, uh, Liz. Yes, sir. All right. Getting to Know Us. Here we go. Getting to Know Us. And that's all I'm going to say because I don't want stuff to get upset with me. All right. Um, so it's the time of the show where we come together to talk about what we have been up to between shows. And so I'd like to start. And first of all, uh, right off the bat here, I want to try to explain why we didn't record at the end of last week and as we had scheduled on Friday. And, um, and we are just now getting around to recording 602, uh, this week. So, um, on, was it Thursday evening? I think, um, I, well, yeah, so I think it was midweek in Atlanta, in Roswell, we had some pretty nasty weather going through the area and, uh, some pretty heavy rain and that kind of thing. And then it, it moved on and everything started drying up. And, uh, I think the next evening, about one o'clock in the morning, I, I, uh, I'm awakened to what sounds like another huge downpour outside and I'm thinking, huh, I thought that that system had already gone through. We weren't, ex- you know, expecting rain. And then I kind of started drifting off back into sleep and then all of a sudden it started getting louder and I'm thinking, sounds like somebody opened up my patio door. It sounds like the water cascading off the balcony from the uh, apartment above. And so I think, and then I hear footsteps, um, on, on my ceiling from my upstairs tenant, uh, on the second floor. And I'm thinking, okay, something, something's up here. What's going on? I walk into my kitchen and then I see the water feature, uh, the indoor water feature of water coming through a couple of the, uh, this was not a previously installed indoor water feature. No, it wasn't an indoor water feature. It it was a new, a new, (laughs) a a new feature that I was, didn't know, uh, existed. And, uh, so what had happened and, and I was really groggy. I really didn't know. I'm thinking, what? Wasn't the water coming off the light fixtures? Yeah, the, the, the light fixtures, uh, uh, I guess, is the place that we're, we're, if water is coming in from above, the water is just going to try to find the path of least resistance, right? And or best flow or whatever. And uh, that happens to be usually in, uh, where the ceiling fixture, lighting fixtures are are situated or, or um, uh, 
uh, fan, uh, the vent boxes for the mm-hmm. HVAC. So I had some coming out of one of the vent boxes in the kitchen and then another uh, like a track lighting uh, setup above the kitchen counter. And then the kitchen island where I used to have all of my podcasting gear set up, um, which was a, an ideal place for it, but I decided a couple of weeks ago to move it to a different location. Glad I did because Someone that kitchen up. island was just covered with water oh, no. and uh, because there was another fixture uh, uh, over that and water was just pouring down. And I was just like, what am I – what do I do? <laughs> who, who do I call? And then all of a sudden I hear this big diesel engined uh, fire truck pulling into our uh, complex uh, outside the door. And I'm thinking, okay, it looks like somebody called. So what happened is that um, the third floor, the top floor of my apartment complex and one apartment over, uh, they had a, a pipe, a supply line into the water heater and burst. And uh, so that it must have been a real, a real fun time up in they that probably, apartment. They probably just had a swimming pool, yeah, pool. not even a water feature. Yeah, I don't know what. Yeah, they were they had much a much more um, impressive water feature going on in their apartment, I think. And uh, so they knew to call the fire department. I mean, I know I don't think I would have ever thought of calling the fire department, but they did, and they went up there with some kind of a tool. And to, so the thing is, uh, I'm thinking, well, I. How would I turn off the one, the water in my apartment complex? And I think the water shutoff valve is behind this um, this door that's locked that has all the HVAC equipment and water heater and all for my own apartment. That's all. I mean, I can't. I guess I'd have to get some kind of device to pry the door open, but it's locked. Um, but anyway, they got that the water shut off up there. The apartment above me. And I guess on either side, um, not either side, but the other side of me, um, they all received, um, you know, water damage, probably worse than mine. Uh, I just got a bunch of towels and put them all over the floor. And that's the only thing I need to do. Uh, fortunately for me, nothing was really um, affected. The only thing that was affected was all of the uh, drywall, the ceiling drywall um, and uh, the flooring that uh, had been in contact with the water. So uh, I'm a very I'm a, <laughs> I am very impressed with my apartment complex leasing management people. Uh, they were like the very next day. Well, I called in the morning at uh, nine o'clock because that's when they open up. And I said, "Well, I'm sure you heard about this, you know, this commotion last night and the water um, issue." And and she said, "No, what? What are you talking about? What? Oh, oh no. really?" And she goes, "Yeah, we're about <laughs> to have our little meeting here." And and I said, okay, well, and then I kind of gave her a brief description. And then, of course, she probably started hearing from some of the other people that were affected by this. And uh, within about an hour or two, um, somebody from the, from the apartment complex was in doing an inspection at a clipboard and taking pictures and everything. And then this, re, I think it's called a remediation company or not, like the water like restoration Pro. or something. Yeah, yeah uh, I don't know exactly what their technical um, description is, but people that go into situations like this and just, you know, take care of it. And, uh, so I'm, I'm thinking, well, it's not really, it doesn't seem like it was a heck of a lot of water, but they go, Oh no. Um, anytime you have drywall that's covered with water and there's insulation up there that's soaking wet and, you know, the potential for mold and all that kind of stuff is, is very high. So, you know, we got, we got anything that water contacted, we have to rip out. 
And so, you know, before you knew it, um, they were, well, the first thing I did was I put in this huge uh, dehumidifier, like commercial grade dehumidifier in there, which, which is not quiet. And several of these very, very noisy fans just to get the air circulating and get the, the water as much as they possibly could out of the um, general area. Uh, so that's why um, that next day we were supposed to record the show. Ain't no way we were going to record a show with all that racket going on inside the apartment. So my well, studio basically. Well, they hung up all sorts of plastic and stuff too, didn't they? Pardon me? Didn't they hang up a whole bunch of plastic? Well, um, yeah. In addition to the noise, uh, they also, uh, when and not the, not right away because the first day was just you know trying to get the dehumidifiers going and everything else. When they came in to actually tear down the ceiling, they had to uh, tape off um, big areas of the uh, of the apartment to keep the draw in I'm using air quotes here the keep the drywall uh, dust from getting on anything and and any of you out there who know anything about construction and drywall you'll know that uh, every attempt you make to eliminate it or keep it from getting on something I mean it's you know, there are various varying degrees of success with that. And you're always going to have some residual. This is just that drywall dust, that gypsum board dust is just very, very fine. And it's just hard to keep off things. And it's just suspended in the air for a while. And then it finally starts to settle. So it's just a mess. So I decided, yeah, let's just not do the show um, this week. Let them come in, take care of the demolition of the ceiling and ripping out the insulation, getting the thing all dried up and then they'll come back in and put the new ceiling in new, you know, new insulation, new ceiling, all that kind of paint and, and then do a deep clean and all that kind of stuff. So I had already planned to be gone this week, um, to head down here. I'm in Tampa right now, uh, to the RV 2024 RV super show at the Florida, um, uh, let's see, Florida state fairgrounds, I guess. Um, and that starts tomorrow. And uh, so I had planned to drive down on Tuesday. Uh, but then in addition to what I thought work was going to be happening on Monday, which didn't happen, still hasn't happened to put in the new stuff. Um, I thought, well, I'm going to get out of their way. They're going to be making a lot of noise. I'm, and then the weather uh, in this uh, in the in the south, uh, Steph, no, you're probably going to have some cool temperatures tomorrow morning, right? Yeah, it's going to be chilly all night. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I could see that, you know, the, a few days ago they were more concerned about it. I think maybe it's not turning out to be as bad as they thought, but the temperatures are going to drop down to pretty low temps. And there's a possibility of winter precipitation in the Atlanta area and, and Roswell and that kind of thing. I'm thinking, I think I'm going to leave a day early and uh, head down on Monday. So I, I drove down to uh, Cedar Key, Florida, because I wanted to check it out. That's one of the places that you know, there are several areas uh, in that general area that I wanted to check out as far as future places for me to park the uh, RV and check out. So that's what I did. Went down and stayed in the Faraway Inn, um, Faraway Inn, excuse me, uh, right there on the water in Cedar Key. And they took uh, uh, the brunt, or maybe not the brunt, of, but a lot of the uh, impact of uh, that hurricane that we had in uh, August 30th, I believe, uh, Idalia, or, Idalia or Idalia, depending on how you want to pronounce it, um, c- kind of went through there. And I think the, they had a storm surge of like nine and a half feet. And this little inn is like right there, right right where that thing must have come on, on shore. So they had uh, several of the little um, 
motel, cottages, whatever, were uh, still in pretty bad repair. Uh, but they were, did have a few that didn't get that much damage. So that's, that's one of the ones I stayed in uh, last night. And then I drove over from there to Tampa, North Tampa, uh, today. So that's where I am. And then tomorrow I'm going to uh, take in the uh, RV show. Um, the reason why I'm coming down is to see the actual, R- not the actual RV, but one very, very much like my RV and the floor plan and everything else and take a really serious look at it. And I brought my measuring tape to kind of, you know, do some measurements for things. And uh, so that's my plan. And then, um, so I'll be down here for a couple of days and probably uh, still be down here on Thursday and sometime during Thursday when we plan to do part two of this recording with uh, Captain Nick and whoever else is available. Uh, and um, and then I'll, I'll drive back to Atlanta, Roswell um, on Friday. So that is what I've been doing. And that's why we didn't uh, record an episode um, at the end of last week. And uh, of course, I did all my a lot of singing that I do, um, mostly funerals last week. I think I sang in four funerals. And uh, then, of course, all the masses. Oh, and also first communion masses as well. So I did uh, seven, five, six, seven masses over the weekend. And a lot of singing. And then, um, yeah, as I said, I, I left uh, Monday morning to come down here. And um, the other thing I have listed on my getting to know us, I'm going to save for part two. So that <laughs> was a lot. Uh, thank you for bearing with me on it. But uh, uh, let's see. Who wants to go next? I can go next. Okay. It actually worked out um, well for me that we did not record last Friday because I was planning on being home and then um, kind of found out last minute from a group of friends that everyone was going to see. Um, there was a Cirque du Soleil show in town. Mm-hmm. And I jumped on the chance to do that. So um, I was about to message and say, oh, I don't, I don't think I'm going to make it tonight. And then Jeff sent his message yeah, about the, uh, yes. <laughs> I went, well, that worked out pretty well. All right. <laughs> so what you're so, saying whew. is it was your fault. Right. It was my fault. Somewhere. Man, it rained a lot here on Friday night, though, because um, mm-hmm. I left my office and basically drove across town to get to, they, were, they had the, um, Cirque du Soleil tent set up basically at the Charlotte Motor Speedway, which is about mm. 30 minutes away from where my the, the office I was in on Friday. And I had gotten over there pretty early and I had some, um, no one else was going to be there that early and I was just hungry. So I went to a little Thai restaurant that was actually quite good. But just to drive the next like four miles across town, it was like driving through a, I don't even know, um, basically the rainfall equivalent of a hurricane without all the winds. Like it was mm. just a lot of water. It was pretty crazy. Um, so I can definitely see why you had some water problems at your, uh, your place, Captain Jeff. Yeah. Um, although it had nothing to do with rain, <laughs> nothing to do with that. Yeah. It had, it had nothing to do with it. Yeah, that's true. It's the, the pipe, but anyway. Yeah. Um, so did that on Friday. Um, and then honestly, I just, I had kind of a, a lazy weekend. Um, it was, sunny and uh, it was it's, it's definitely not been as cold here as it's been in the rest of the United States or a lot of places around the country. Um, we actually had 60 degree temps yesterday during the afternoon. So I went out for a run in shorts and a t-shirt. Um, it was not that warm over the weekend. It was kind of, kind of windy. Um, the only thing of note that I did was I joined a group of um, 
kind of some of the same friend group um, who are skydivers and we've been doing some coaching time in the wind tunnels here locally during our off season. So went with them out to, um, to Rayford, North Carolina, where they have a bigger wind tunnel, which is a 16 foot diameter tunnel. We can do a little bit more dynamic, dynamic stuff and got some coaching there and um, then went out to 16 inches, huh? <laughs> 16 feet. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. Um, but yeah, I was, you know, always, always lots to work on there. So a lot of fun. Um, always a little bit humbling, um, in terms of what you think you can do or should be able to do and, and, um, trying to just progress in skills. So looking forward to continuing a little bit more of that in the next couple of weeks until we get back to actually flying and, and jumping in the air. Cool. So, yeah. Not much more to add than that, but I'm glad we um, had a chance to record tonight. Sorry that I, it's my fault that we pushed the time back. Although anyone listening to this probably doesn't know, but um, kind of a couple busy days coming up. Our uh, the company I work for is in the midst of a search for uh, one of our um, executive positions. Um, so we're some meet and greets tonight and tomorrow night, and the one tonight was delayed because the candidate's flight was original flight was canceled, and then delayed, um, largely due to things happening, uh, not here, but, uh, where they were coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Darn airlines. But they made it here safely. We were able to at least do a little bit of meet and greet. And I know they're doing, um, kind of formal dinners with our, our formal search committee tonight. So good stuff. Excellent. All right. Camacho. She been up? Yes. Uh, I've been working a ton uh, and that will continue this week into another work trip next week. I'm going up to uh, the greater Salt Lake City area to do some stuff up there. Um, obviously need to get my work life aligned a little bit better because I spent August in Houston on the coast. And now I'm spending January. Yeah, you're- in Salt Lake City. Which is like wrong. <laughs> it's not backwards not. if you like skiing. I don't like, I don't ski. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm, I feel like I'm too brittle to ski. So I, I avoid <laughs> the skiing. Um, uh, no, I, I have too many expensive hobbies. So that was a, yeah. And skiing is also a proactive decision hobby. that I made, especially yeah. when I moved out to California and I had all my, or some of my family skis and snowboards. And they said, Hey, come do this with us. And I said, uh, Explain to me the cost structure again. <laughs> yeah, I'll pass on that. Um, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, um, that's which is okay structure. if you're into it. It's yeah. just I, it's I just own another an airplane, expensive which is hobby. like a lot, yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. So gotcha. <laughs> yeah, so I'll be uh, out in Utah for a bit, and then hopefully things slow down in February. But we'll see. Uh, and then this past weekend, I was down in. Uh, a suburb of Austin, Texas, where I had a family member getting baptized hmm. into the Catholic Church. I thought about uh, trying to get Jeff to book an express flight out there and sing for us, but oh, uh, I would have loved to have done that. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of a last minute deal. Um, mm-hmm. Jeff Nielsen itinerant for me, singer. for me, last, last out there. minute baptism. Oh no, last minute for you to get there. Okay. Uh, well, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> I could do the, a baptism, uh, but that's not the normal way to do it. Doesn't require a priest yeah. to do a baptism. That's just the normal way that things that things are done. <laughs> in the yeah, no, I. Uh, so this is my sister who lives down in Austin, and 
as you know, my, the rest of my family all live up here, my, north of Oklahoma. And so um, her husband's family are all down in Austin. And so they all have a pretty solid turnout to the all of their children's functions. And she said, uh, you know, it'd be kind of cool to have someone from our side of the family here for once. And so uh, we were trying to work it out whether I could make it down there or my folks could make it down there. And it uh, just ended up working out a little bit better for uh, me to just run down there real quick. I was only down there for a couple of days and then uh, turn around and get home just in time for uh, a couple of straight days of never getting above zero degrees. You had some barbecue down in Austin. Zero F. Yeah. Um, Yep. Did eat some barbecue in Austin. Sent Jeff some pictures. Yeah. Also to try to. One of these days we'll have to meet up down there. Was that Franklin that Um, you went to? It was not Franklin. That was actually Interstellar Barbecue, which is a Uh newer place. I think it Uh opened in 2019 or 2020. Uh, But Texas Monthly, which is a Texas magazine, has one of the well-known, I guess, um, or one of the more respected rankings. I don't know. Mm -hmm. They're one of the ones that you read about commonly. And uh, this place, and they do it every four years, and this place was ranked number two in the most recent ranking, which I think was 2021. Mm -hmm. Um, But, man, it was really good. Yeah, it looked really really good. We waited in line for about an hour 20 maybe. Wow. Um, But it was worth it. But it was worth it. uh, It was worth it. Yeah, I didn't really have anything else to do, so um, figured I'd give it a shot. You guys got to eat. Yep. I love Austin barbecue. Oh, man. Yeah, missed it. Going to have to take my RV down there. Yep. Yep. Um, Hey, um, how about uh, any sporting activities uh, you've been involved with uh, recently? (laughs) No, I have not. Uh, We were talking before the show about the Chiefs. Um, oh, I thought you actually did go up there. You, you didn't? No. No, no. I was in Austin. I was trying oh, to go. Oh, I got or, you. I mean, my, okay. I was trying to get my brother to go. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but as many people may know, the Chiefs played, uh, I think, the third coldest game in the history of the NFL or something like that. Hmm. It was uh, minus seven at kickoff and um, Fahrenheit. It was, I think, yeah, minus four at kickoff, minus seven by the end and wind chill of like, I don't know. 27? 20s minus um, 27. Minus yeah, 20. I was trying to c- convince my brother to go. Um, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law did actually go. Um, so they survived, which seemed <laughs> no, no seemed frostbite. To be a question for a while. <laughs> no body parts but uh, <laughs> yeah, but I will go ahead and just real quickly um, share my favorite video from. Um, let me see if this will work. Will this work? Can I share this? Just you like, can share a uh, video, but there will be no audio. Oh, now it's frozen. <laughs> well, if that's appropriate, <laughs> I can read nope. the caption there of what what it says. So, so basically, this guy takes the water bottle out of the cooler. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. And it freezes. It freezes in like eight seconds after yeah. the water bottle oh, comes. Yeah, out of the cooler. incredible. That's amazing. Um, so I went to a pretty cold uh, NFL game one time with dispatcher Mike and the oh, yeah. uh, trick was you had to, to consume no. your beer before it froze. So you had to <laughs> drink fast. Not so that is too cold. Ship, right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's that what should, it would be warm should... and, you know, undrinkable, but otherwise it would just freeze in the bottle. So. Yep. 
it was it was That's not as cool as that game, but you know they were showing pictures of you know after the game when people like leave their beer and leave their trash in the stadium oh it like and all the beer the had like foamed and, over mm-hmm. the top and just and frozen, frozen as it went down and made yep. like beer icicles yeah mm. it's a unique thing yeah oh you know i i forgot that i had a little um uh, speaking of videos i was going to um show uh no that's not it what happened um from that's cedar key that's the um uh little uh inn that i stayed in that those are the um uh individual bungalows bungalows that uh was still uh, were hit the brunt of the storm and have not been fixed up yet they're still kind of heavily damaged i don't you can't really tell from this photo but uh they don't the doors aren't there and the windows are all broken and everything else but what i was going to try to play was this uh this movie see if this works yeah i don't know can you hear uh anything the audio yep okay so that's um looking to the north basically and actually the to the east at this point and so i'm just kind of swinging it around uh, it's going toward the south it's obviously going into the wind with the uh, iPhone. That's a little island that you can kayak to. Uh, I wasn't going to do that because it wasn't good weather for kayaking. Um, and uh, the rocks. And then looking in this direction, you'd be looking to the southwest, which would have been the direction that uh, Adelia uh, came in, made landfall. And uh, and there's a, a motel there that uh, is still kind of... Mm. boarded up and Destroyed. yeah kind of wrecked cool. but uh anyway so there we go probably not gonna so you want to do a coffee fund and then put that, that on the audio podcast that? but i thought anybody here and watching the video might want to see it uh, i'm sorry liz what coffee fund and then the one feedback item coffee fund one feedback and, we're, and we'll call it a night okay yep. let's do that coffee Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. Oops. I love tea. I love the APG community. Come on, Liz. Coffee and tea. You can do it. Here. Just, okay, here. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it. Sorry. The Coffee Fund. It's your way to support the show financially. Now, you'll notice that... Uh, we don't have commercials. We don't have advertising on the show. And trust me, we have people knocking down our door trying to do. uh, throw money at us for advertising. And that, and I'm not, well, maybe not knocking down the door. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but there are, that we, several people have reached out to us, but I am, you know, just determined that we not ever, because I hate listening to podcasts that have advertising. Sorry if you're one of those out there, but uh, I like the way we do it here, which is supported by our community. Uh, we call it the Coffee Fund. That's why we have the Coffee Fund jingle going on there. And uh, a couple of different ways you can support the show or, or use the Coffee Fund or join the Coffee Fund, whatever. Uh, and one is called the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And since the last episode, we had four people um, send in some very nice uh, donations. Um, Magnus, Magnus, Gladden and Steph's uh, showing her coffee mug. Oh, Steph's showing the coffee mug there. How appropriate! Yes, that, I think that's one that I actually made. It is. Uh, yes. Um, wow. 
and uh, let's see, when I back in the days when I was still printing, like uh, crafted it out of a mound of clay. Well, yeah. like that movie yes. Ghost, <laughs> little yes, ceramic exactly. powder that I mixed Patrick with water. Fired in the yeah, <laughs> yeah the old kiln. Yeah. <laughs> these are these are hand, this is he hand painted all of this like this, well you know? not really <laughs> look at all, look at all that lettering thanks it's very precise yes i did thank you steph and i took my little brush and the inside's all dark blue i, I painted all that <laughs> it is a lot of detail work here folks <laughs> no oh it, i mean <laughs> i did some work on it. <laughs> I printed, I printed something using a sublimation ink printer and uh, put the piece of paper, strapped it on there, and put a little toaster up. Back to the <laughs> all, all I'm trying fun. to say is I can't do this stuff. Back to I don't the coffee know. Fun. Okay. <laughs> this is fun. All right. Coffee. Thanks, Steph. <laughs> now I got the darn giggles. <laughs> You, you got co- as far as Magnus. Uh, Magnus. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, in Sweden, I believe, right? Isn't he from Sweden? Uh, he, Definitely he came, one of the Nordic countries. Yeah, uh, Sweden or Switzerland. <laughs> That's one of those. <laughs> one of the SW Slovakia. <laughs> no, it's definitely a Scandinavian company, country. country. Finland. Yeah, not Finland. Gosh darn it. <laughs> Anyway, Magnus, thank you. If you're if you're listening to this, sorry. <laughs> he he sent a very very nice donation, and he sent along um, a very nice note that we're going to play in feedback, either on this part or the next part, <laughs> part one, part two. Uh, Tim Qualls sent uh, sent a very nice donation as well. Mazutz uh, Kareem um, all, uh, sends us um, an ongoing thing flyer. every month, and um, Willie bag in uh, Melbourne. Now, uh, you'll notice that uh, many of these have asterisks there. That means they sent us a little bit, of, a little note, a little bit of a note. Okay, so let me find the little bit of notes. And let's, uh, from Tim, he says he sent in $1 for each year of flying. And so I flew 42 years, uh, both Air Force and uh, in the uh, at Delta. So uh, you do the math. It was a very nice donation. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate that. Uh, Willie Bagg from Melbourne, uh, Australia, again. He says, thanks for explaining the difference between chapters and timestamps in episode 601, and then for reinstating the timestamps to be visible again on Google Podcasts. I do find them useful for navigating. And thank you for letting us know. Willie, because uh, otherwise I didn't think anybody paid attention to any of that stuff, and it's just extra work. But I'm I'm willing to do it for sure if uh, if it's helpful to anybody out there. So thank you for uh, conveying that. And um, as I mentioned, uh, the note from uh, Magnus will be in our feedback segment. So if you want to uh, be part of this wonderful group of people that support us financially, please. Check it out by going to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will too. And you'll probably be happy that this segment's over. <laughs> I know it was I am. a great coffee it was fun very segment. entertaining. <laughs> wow. There's probably a good reason why I don't record this late at night. And I haven't really been drinking. <laughs> Yeah, hey, we've already uh, gotten caught up with uh, with Steph and Nick Camacho. Uh, 
Nick Anderson, Captain Nick, wasn't with us at the time, and but he's here now in part two. And so now we're going to hear from you, sir. Uh, what have you been up to? Still doing the bowling? Uh, yeah, I had a disastrous game. Absolutely oh, no. awful uh, playing for the county the other day. Uh, I couldn't do a thing right. Uh, so mm. I'm trying to blank that from my oh, sorry, I mentioned uh, memory. <laughs> yeah, trying not to talk about it. Uh, but otherwise, apart from that one game, things came fine. Um, mm. Yeah, I gave a talk to the Royal Aeronautical Society uh, last night. Uh, this is the branch at Weybridge. Uh, I've mentioned them a few times. Uh, and it was held at the Brooklands Museum. They have a, a nice, lovely meal beforehand, and they've got a bar there, so you can have a few beers. It's a very comfortable sort of entertainment area that the museum have that the um, people in the uh, Royal Aeronautical Society also use. Anyway, they're very friendly, great fun, talking uh, about my time in the hornet's nest, uh, basically flying the hornet in Australia, so... That is uh, my number two talk. And uh, (laughs) I made the mistake uh, at the end of saying, well, you know, if you really get bored, I could always uh, knock up a talk about the tornado, which is the was my final uh, three years in the Air Force flying that. And they grabbed it at the chance for that. So I'm probably going to have to uh, knock another talk up now and, and nice chit chat about uh, yes have a, a nice dinner with them and have a chit chat about that but anyway fa- that chit chat about your favorite jet yeah <laughs> well i'm gonna be a little rude about it i wasn't very rude about the hornet at all because <laughs> there was very little wrong with it It was wonderful i go back um, to so the first that- uh, slide liz i'm sorry to interrupt you yeah. sir uh-huh. um i have always suspected that uh, nick is maybe a robot and look at this. You see on his uh, on his chest there. It's uh, the, the oh oh yeah. The, all the the go oh, button, the play button. Oh and, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, indeed. Yeah. I knew it. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Continue. That's sorry. actually the book that was presented to me by the Hawker Association when I gave a talk to them, and uh, the Hawker chap was there at this and wanted a picture of me with the book, so he oh, nice. put it in their magazine. So that was that. Uh, and last night, uh, I had my birthday treat. Now, my birthday is on September the 9th. <laughs> so, as you can imagine, <laughs> this treat is a little delayed. Yeah. But um, uh, she who uh, shall always be obeyed um, booked a very nice uh, restaurant in Chichester, a town only half an hour away down by the coast. And we had a lovely meal. Um, I had uh, crispy pork belly. Uh, on a bed of um, uh, mashed potato, etc., and cheese board and all. It was very pleasant. Uh, anyway, we went up to the, the uh, festival theatre and listened to um, Fisherman's Friends. Now, in the UK, they, they started off just as a, uh, a little bunch of guys who sang together in the lovely coastal town in Cornwall of uh, uh, Port Isaacs. Um, and they um, started producing records. They were recognized. They've made two films about them, two um, cinema feature-length films. Uh, and um, they're really quite famous now, certainly uh, in our neck of the woods. And the only reason I thought it'd be worth mentioning is that 
Uh, they, they never even referred to it, but behind them were three flags. And, uh, of course, the middle one is uh, black background, white cross. It's the flag of Cornwall. Okay, they, it's, not a, it's not like uh, Wales or Scotland. It's not an independent country. It's definitely part of England, but they also like to maintain their uh, individuality. So they have themselves a flag. But beside it are two naval flags that you'd hang off your signal pole or whatever you have on a boat where you hang signal flags. And uh, I was scratching my head and I was sitting beside a very nice uh, chap from a retired army uh, officer. And um, I said to him, yeah, I suppose you know what those flags are. He says, yeah, I've been asking folks around. Someone's worked it out. The one on the left means I'm on fire. And the one on the right means I need medical assistance, (laughs) which I thought was rather an amusing thing to sneak up in front of the audience uh, so uh, that was great i enjoyed that they 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 sing sea shanties and all sorts of stuff so uh, it was a, a really nice concert to listen to that was good that's been my week really nothing last, much else last week's cover art oh yeah let's uh let's talk about last week's cover art oh golly yes there was a lot in this one um we had so many suggestions to this uh, it started off with the French unions uh, going on strike. Uh, so that resolved itself into a bowl of French union soup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and someone was talking about escargot snails, because, of course, the French mm-hmm. uh, were famous for, uh, for finding ways of eating those palatably. And I really actually quite like uh, garlic snails. But anyway, so I chucked some snails in it and then someone said oh that uh, escargot let's escargot around you can always escargot around (laughs) exactly right (laughs) you can always escargot around brilliant and then uh, i'm trying to remember who this was someone like eye hall boxes uh, yeah and uh, then then i think came up the suggestion ah you clear an emergency (laughs) so we've got a chocolate Eclair up there mm. with I Eclair Emergency. And, of course, because uh, the, a lot of the stories were concerning NOTAMs, uh, we had to have NOTAMs are a bunch of crep. Crep. So, <laughs> so there you go. Crap. And uh, the title came out as uh, Snailed It. Uh, yeah, the show title number was Hidden in the Crep. If you look carefully, you've got uh, uh, some little holes in the batter that makes 601 and uh the yeah that was that was uh that was just like a uh, zero so that was good and uh we managed to sneak the um apg uh image in uh, we engraved it on the end of the spoon yeah apg our personal cutlery there liz have you not have you put that one up already i thought we yeah, oh, I didn't do that. Oh, oh, yes, he did. Sorry. My yeah, I, yeah. Come on, Liz, get a bad. grip. <laughs> I, was, I was smiling at this. I was smiling at Nigel's comment, which I love. Okay, well, you're gonna need to do this. Add this to the stage so we can see it. There we go. Ah, there we go. <laughs> there it is the, on uh, the end of the uh, logo. There on the end of the. Sorry. Yeah. What did Nigel say? We Boeing types used to call the Airbus an escargot because it flies so slowly. An escargot. 
Oh, because it's a snail, it's and a snails snail. are slow. We have to explain uh, things to, yeah, to Nick. Yeah, Nigel. Well, well, Nigel it's certainly slow. does. He speaks a different language. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was a bit of fun. And I must thank, uh, I don't need to thank Mid Journey because we pay for the service, but they did a pretty good job, actually, of uh, making an image of uh, French onion soup. I thought that was good. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. I thought the I thought the number was in the onions there, but then I saw Yeah, it. Liz was trying to make something out of the uh the onions and the make uh, something the out union of the old, soup. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Nah, I I don't know. I just happened to glance right at the the number. I went, "Oh, that was easy." <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh let's see. Oh, just an update. Um so the part 1, I was down in Tampa at the uh, RV Super Show. And uh, I'd gone down, you know, about this time or uh, more than a week ago is when I had this um, uh, indoor water feature thing going on, the flooding of my apartment, and they had to come in and rip out the uh, the ceiling. And uh, so I'm thinking, well, this is perfect. Uh, they're supposed to come in, come in on Monday and start, you know, making the repairs and making it brand new. And when I come back, it's all going to be done, all finished. It's, uh, in fact, when I was down there, I have a little camera here, like a little security camera, and I could clearly see that there was still a big hole in the ceiling and, uh, exposed rafters and everything else. And so finally, and I also got this little, uh, notification from the management here at the apartment complex that like basically was a follow-up. Okay. Your, um, your maintenance, um, work order is complete and, you know, give us some feedback on it. And I'm thinking, it's, well, it's not complete. Uh, so I finally called them and said, so just wondering what's happening here. I think there's a miscommunication because there's, oh yeah, you know, they're finished. And I said, well, no, there's still a big hole in the ceiling and there's still all this equipment in here and it's still a mess with drywall dust all over everything. Huh? <laughs> there is? <laughs> so anyway, they're going to come back in on Monday, I guess, to kind of finish everything off. So that's your update on my water feature issue here in the uh in Yeah, the I know. Uh, did they put a water slide in for you so you can get um, to, or perhaps for Hillel so he can and that was the other question yeah. who, who left the water on was it Hillel that did that cuz oh, I know had what? my suspicion I didn't even think about that. I bet that oh. was the problem. Although it was in somebody else's apartment but I wouldn't put it past him <laughs> to like be in other people's restrooms, uh, bathrooms well, as well. Exactly right. Uh, you must get a bit bored with yours. So yeah. he probably wants to move <laughs> just, around a bit. It's just exploring. <laughs> um, and then the thing I mentioned, um, uh, in part one that, uh, we were going to, um, we had a bone to pick with eye hall boxes. I don't believe he was able to be with us on the last, uh, or the part one. So we thought, well, we'll just do it for part well, two. No, unfortunately. He dropped in and he said, I just, Oh, that's by. right. He dropped like, in and he wasn't able, it was like just a quick check in and a check out got to go. So he wasn't there long enough for me to mention the fact that a little birdie told us, informed us that on January 11th, it was his birthday. I haul boxes had a birthday on January 11th yeah. and this person anonymously 16 now. Belated happy birthday. Thank you for being a member of the APG community and especially for your participation in the live chat room. You make us think and laugh. Hope you had a great day. So Very um, nice. Very yeah. nice. Yay. Yes. Well, he was there, he, yeah. Does this birthday mean he's grown up at last? No. Mm. We don't <laughs> well, maybe physically. 
that uh, <laughs> that's all we can say about that. Captain, incoming message. All right. We received this feedback from Miss Becky, Becky Rausch. And uh, she says, as one who has never assembled anything more complicated than an Ikea bookshelf, that can get kind of complicated, actually. I have a couple of questions for low and slow pilot Nick. As you've, uh, as you've put the, as you, as you've to put the, as you have to put the new engine in your airplane, you've had many small episodes being able to work and then you leave and then you come back. Is there like, a master checklist that you check off each thing as you do it, or do you keep that in your head, uh, or is it something that you can just look at and know what the next step is? My other question is: Do you ever inspect your own work, or is it always mandated, or at least wise, to have a different AMP person inspect the work you've done? Are you too close to it to be objective, or is it so clear past fail that uh, if you're a qualified inspector, you can ex- inspect your own work? I love hearing your journey. And again, that's from Becky. Great questions. I, I want to know the answers too. So uh, hit it. Uh, yeah. So um, that's a really good point. I've had a couple of uh, instances where the airplanes have been apart for longer than I had uh, hoped. And there is not necessarily a um, master checklist for each task that we do. Um, but I do generally create, um, like a checklist as I'm going into a project, especially a larger project, like the engine. Um, you know, there was, I, I just keep kind of like a running, um, list of, um, I guess deferred items, basically, um, items that are not airworthiness issues, just like little, uh, cosmetic things I would want to change or things that aren't necessarily, um, non-functional, but if I had the chance to get at them, like in the instance of having the engine out of the airplane, I want I would want to go ahead and replace something. Um, I just kind of keep that running. And so then when I, um, when I was getting ready to do my instrument panel or when I was getting ready to replace the engine, uh, you know, I kind of went through my list and I created a, um, kind of like a punch list of items that I was going to be going through as I had the engine out of the airplane. Um, so, uh, that is one thing I do to kind of keep track of, of what I've, what I want to do and what I've already done. Um, I also take a ton of pictures. Um, and that started when I was, uh, going to, uh, when I was working on getting my AMP, that was kind of part of the documentation step was I wanted to have pictures of all the work that I did. So if there was any question about, how much experience I actually had or, you know, what tasks I had actually completed. Um, I, I would have, uh, pictorial evidence of it. And, uh, what, what I found out as I started doing that, uh, is that it was just a super useful resource to have for an old airplane because, you know, there's the old airplane has a, um, maintenance manual and a parts catalog, but it's also been out in the wild for 60 years. And so, uh, things have changed, um, you know, as, as parts get replaced, as parts get remade, uh, they don't always get put back in the same place or they get supported in different areas. And so, um, 
I've had multiple instances of, um, you know, I go to do something or put it back together and, uh, I'll either look in the IPC or, you know, just kind of eyeball it and, and look, think about the logical way to do that. And it won't work. And I'll say, what? I don't, I don't quite understand what's going on here. And then I'll be able to go back to my pictures and I'll see like, oh yeah, they routed this stuff this way, you know, rewiring this way or a control cable that way. So, um, pictures are a really good way. I keep track of, um, everything that I've done to the airplane, because a lot of times when I'm taking something off the airplane, I take multiple pictures of the way it is, and then I'll pull the parts or the components off the airplane and then, you know, take pictures of it or do whatever I'm going to do to it and replace it. And so then I can just go down my, basically go down my iCloud account. Um, I save everything to a airplane, um, album and, uh, and that's basically the way that I keep track of everything that I've touched on the airplane. Cause that is a big deal for me. Cause I have these scenarios where I take parts off the airplane. I'm putting parts on the airplane months after I've taken them off. So it is critical that, um, everything that gets taken off goes back on. <laughs> I remember, you know, remember the first time I used a, um, uh, a iPhone camera to take a picture of like, I was taking apart a, thermostat or something and all the different wires and colored wires and everything else. And I thought, oh, I'll just take a snap a photo of it. Mm -hmm. And then now I have the reference when it's time for me to put everything back together. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's obviously a yeah, lot more the, complicated what you do. But The camera, uh, this is a tangent, but the iPhone camera has gotten so amazing that now I will even use it for like, as like a microscope. Cause I'll, you know, there'll be like a, a printed, um, identifier on a wire or something right and it's kind of worn away or it's tiny it's written in like 0.5 font um and so it's really hard to read but you can you know zoom in with the iphone camera and you can get the iphone camera down places where you can't get your head and mm -hmm. it's a uh, man super useful tool sure is uh but anyway going forward uh the other question uh do you ever inspect your own work or is it always mandated or at least wise to have a different AMP person inspect the work you've done. So legally, um, I can, uh, complete work and return to service. Um, basically anything with the exception of a, um, annual inspection or a major repair or alteration. So anything that does not meet the threshold of, those three items I can do all on my own with um, no oversight. I have never done anything on my airplane without having at least one other set of eyes look at it. And this goes all the way back to um, when I was in college and we had all of our flying buddies and we were all just getting into aviation and um, or just out of college, I guess. And we were all like young engineers and, um, did a lot of dumb things back in those days, but I think one, uh, smart thing that we did back then, and I've kind of carried forward is, um, there were about four or five of us. And one of the guys in the group had this rule where if you worked on an airplane, um, you, if he worked on an airplane, he couldn't fly it, uh, until another set of eyes looked at it. And that meant either somebody else looking at it right when he completed the work or 
he went home basically like completely disengaged from the task and then came back the next day and was able to kind of like look at it again with a fresh set of eyes and a fresh mind so that he's not, you know, overlooking anything that he might just have um, missed in like rushing to button it up. So uh, I kind of carried that forward. And then um, also just with the general feeling that I was always concerned about my um, small amount of knowledge I had as a um, young uh, apprentice AMP or somebody who's uh, just starting out. Um, I had the good fortune of having my dad around who has uh, a ton of experience. And so it's just too easy to not have him look at everything I do. And so um, he's basically inspected everything I do. Um, when I have big projects, I have multiple people look at everything. <laughs> For instance, like when I had uh, the panel, getting ready to put the panel in my airplane, I had my dad and I had two other guys that are both kind of avionics gurus come crawl through the airplane and look at all my wiring, my bundling, my wire restraints, my wire supports, and make sure that they liked everything that was there. Um, and I'm kind of doing the same thing with the engine. A couple of nights ago, um, I had one of, uh, one of the guys that we've, uh, my dad's known for a long time, um, come out and look at my, um, built up engine installation on the stand, look at the, uh, work that I'd done in the nacelle and basically, you know, make sure that I'm not overlooking anything on my own. And so, uh, I guess the answer to your question is, um, do you ever inspect your own work? I always inspect my own work, uh, but that is never sufficient for me to complete it. And is it always mandated or at least wise? And it's not always mandated, but in my mind, it's definitely wise to have um, somebody else inspect it. Now, if I was working full-time as an AMP and working on the same airframes all the time, I think I'd get to a level of proficiency where there would be certain things that I would feel comfortable doing. Um, but, uh, you know, right now, one of the issues that I face is that, um, I'm working on one airframe and I'm doing all sorts of different tasks on that airframe. So even if I've done something and I feel confident that I know how to do it, uh, it may be something that I haven't done for a year if it's an annual task or a couple of years, if it's just a maintenance task that comes up on occasion, um, so I never feel like I have the level of proficiency where I can, uh, accomplish it and inspect it by myself without for sure not missing anything. Cool. Well, does well, that cover, did I cover everything? I think, there? Yeah. I think oh, so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Great answers. Yeah. All right. Thanks Becky for, for asking those questions because I'm sure that, um, many of us, most of us probably had, had, we're, we're wondering about that sort of thing. So very cool. Um, Let's see. I guess. Do you want to do Magnuses just before we go? Yeah, let's do that. Um, Magnus, again, apologies for 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 that coffee fun segment. Um, but, <laughs> number six. Uh, we're going to jump over to your feedback, which is uh, item number six here in our list. And it says, Merry Christmas, Happy Birthday, Happy Retirement. Well, thank you. Uh, wow. 35 years at Delta and a couple of years flying in the military. Seven, to be exact, a little over seven. I'm so glad meeting you, uh, as well as Nick and the rest of the bunch in England. Yeah, that was a fun time. Uh, donate uh, to your, he donated to the coffee fund, and I hope uh, I can join you all in the U.S. 
uh, in a U.S. meetup someday, uh, only for a day. I guess he can only handle so much of us if it's only for a day. <laughs> I mean, maybe yeah. maybe do some other things while you're here if you're coming all the way. There's what you know, what, what, what else would you want to come and do here? Yeah, the APG meetup. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no. of course. Yeah, lots of things to see and do here in the U.S. of A. If you haven't been here before, or even if you have, I mean, I've lived here my entire life, and I'm about to set off on a a whirlwind um, journey of uh, adventure discovery. and sightseeing and discovery in this country that I've, you know, as I said, I, I was born and raised here and lived all 65 years. And uh, there's still Look things that I USA, haven't seen. Here he comes. So, uh, yeah. So hopefully you can come over here for a meetup and spend at least a day with us. Maybe if you don't hate us too much, you can spend more time if you'd like. Um, anyway, Magnus uh, ends it by saying, take care and God bless you. Kind regards, Magnus. And Mag he's such a generous person. He's It's not the first time he's donated to our coffee fund. And uh, in fact, he uh, brought at that meetup, brought uh, two wonderful um, bottles of gin from Sweden. I'm pretty sure it's Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, too. I think it is. And uh, yeah, and he flew all the way over from Sweden to I the know. UK just for the meetup. Uh, wow. when we were uh, there or I was there for the Where Eva was summer there too. and Eva was there too. Yeah. She's yeah. not here with us now, but she was here earlier. So, um, yeah, so it was a great time. Great meeting all you people, uh, especially you, Magnus. So thank you for your very, very generous con uh, contribution. And, uh, thanks for your note as well. You know what? This would be a darn good time for a plane tale. What do you think? Uh, the old pilot, has uh, done something here called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon. Hmm, that's an unusual title. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon. The year is 1957 and the space race is underway. The major powers around the world, mainly the Soviet Union and the United States, are all striving to develop the technology that will allow them to reach outer space. The Soviet Union's Academy of Sciences' prime aim was to beat the Americans into Earth orbit, and their top-secret Sputnik project was about to reward all the efforts put in by a generation of scientists and engineers. Sputnik 1 was soon to be placed atop an R-7 rocket and launched into a low orbit to become the first artificial Earth satellite. The R-7 had already flown and become the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile but on the 4th of October 1957, the national pride and kudos that would rain down on the Soviet Union following their technical marvel would be immeasurable. But what if they hadn't been the first? How might the tensions of the Cold War be eased had someone else achieved this milestone? It actually might have happened a couple of months earlier, on the 26th of July. It was part of Operation Plumbob, 
a series of 29 nuclear explosions meant to study various aspects of this weapon. American scientists blew up and irradiated several hundred pigs, involved 18,000 members of the U.S. military in the rigours of a nuclear battlefield, and exposed a number of Air Force officers and a photographer to the effects of a nuclear air-to-air missile. Bombs were carried aloft by balloons and then detonated, whilst some were aimed at simulating the effects of an explosion following an aircraft crash. Pascal A, a low-wheeled device, was the first underground test ever conducted and it was placed into a 500-foot uncapped shaft in the Nevada test site. About halfway down the shaft, there was a two-ton concrete plug, five feet thick, with a hole in the middle for one of many sensors that would measure the effects of the explosion to look through. These were still early days of nuclear weapon development, so when ignited, the blast yield was considerably higher by a factor of a mere 50,000 than expected, and a jet of fiery blue plasma was ejected several hundred feet into the air. It was described by observers as... The biggest damn Roman candle you ever saw. It was beautiful. Big blue glow in the sky. The two-ton concrete plug was completely vaporized. The second underground test, Pascal B, originally named Galileo B, was lowered into a similar borehole three feet wide and 485 feet, 148 meters deep. This time the concrete plug was placed only a few feet above the bomb and the top of the hole was capped with a circular slab of four-inch thick armour that weighed a couple of thousand pounds around a metric tonne and which was welded into position. When all was prepared, the countdown commenced. Five, four... And the recorders were started. Two, one, zero. Including a high-speed camera that was aimed at the top of the shaft and was running at one frame every millisecond. In the depths of the borehole, a flash more than a million times brighter than the sun went almost unobserved apart from the momentary readings from the sensors around the bomb before they were obliterated, and the shaft of superheated flame that escaped from the top. The special cameras were whirring at their frantic speed, eating up miles of film in seconds, and in the aftermath, the photographic specialists poured over the results. There... Captured on a single frame was an image of a large circular manhole cover rocketing upwards so fast that a millisecond later it was already out of sight. 
Many years later, Dr. Robert Brownlee, the astrophysicist who designed the test in question, was interviewed about what happened. What time does the shock arrive at the top of the pipe? 31 milliseconds. And what happens? The shock reflects back down the hole, but the pressures and temperatures are such that the welded cap is bound to come off the hole. How fast does it go? My calculations are irrelevant on this point. They are only valid in speaking of the shock reflection. How fast did it go? Those numbers are meaningless. I only have a vacuum above the cap. No air, no gravity, no real material strengths in the iron cap. Effectively, the cap is just loose, traveling through meaningless space. And how fast is it going? Six times the escape velocity from the Earth. A few years after Robert Brownlee's recollections of his time working in the Nevada desert, NASA launched the New Horizons Interplanetary Space Probe on its decades-long mission to fly by Jupiter, Pluto, and then the Kuiper Belt object, Arrokoth. Launched atop a massive Atlas V, it was fired directly into an Earth and solar escape trajectory, with a speed of 58,500 kilometers per hour, or 36,400 miles per hour, which is 10.1 miles every second, and hailed as the fastest human-made object to have ever been launched from planet Earth. Not so fast there, Everyone who knows of Brownlee's flying manhole cover said. The calculations that were made at the time, and verified in recent years, put the speed of the Pascal B borehole cap at a conservative 200,000 kilometers per hour or 125,000 miles per hour, about 35 miles per second, dwarfing the efforts made by the New Horizons probe. Whether or not the cap actually made it into space is still a topic of debate. No trace of it was ever found and some believe that it could have been vaporized in the same manner as a meteorite burning up on entry into the Earth's atmosphere, but in reverse. Others theorize that the object may have survived its unconventional launch into outer space and beaten Sputnik by one month and nine days. NASA have never found it in orbit, but then it is small and dark and was not fired in an orbital trajectory, which requires a downrange velocity of around 17,000 miles an hour, 27,400 kilometers per hour, to maintain an orbit at an altitude of, say, 150 miles, 242 kilometers. If an object achieves over 25,000 miles an hour, 40,320 kilometers per hour, it will completely escape Earth's gravity and fly off into space. Possessing around five times this velocity, if it survived its transit through the atmosphere, the manhole cover 
will probably now have left our solar system and be making its way into the deepest, darkest corners of the galaxy. I wonder if anyone wrote anything on it. I think I know the answer. <laughs> because I just saw the picture of it. And oh, yeah, which is not a mock-up. It's a real picture. No, yeah, I know. There it is. Yeah, actually flying through space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's a bit what fuzzy because a... <laughs> they have to use a very big telescope. Yeah, but they did spot it, so that's good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Somewhere out there. That's funny. Absolutely. Jeff, so they... you're not showing on the screen for some reason. Pardon me? Jeff, you're not Oh, I know. I'm not showing on the screen because I need to turn my camera back on. There we go. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, hi. But you heard my voice, though. That's that's the important thing. It's, Absolutely. Yeah, I went to sleep there for a second. <laughs> uh, that's that's a great story. I'd not heard of this. I guess it was just something that was recently revealed. Uh, it, it appeared in an article about, I think, about 2018, 2019, uh -huh. uh, and there have been a few references to it, but uh, I came across it completely by accident and thought, oh, what a great story. Did the Americans really beat uh, the <laughs> Russians to the Soviets to putting the first uh, man-made object into uh, outer space and uh, considerably better than uh, a little uh, puttering Sputnik that, Barely made a low Earth uh, orbit. This thing yeah. went rocketing yeah, off. I don't think it made an orbit at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> it, did. it didn't. Well, you never know. In in a few billion years, it might have gone entirely around the uh, universe uh, and come back again. Uh, I, I'm sure that's what happened. And they're <laughs> and they're looking at it, going, "Fly Acme Airlines? What? what uh, is exactly. This? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> How did you know that you were going to make a podcast using well, that logo back in 1957? Yeah. That's, let alone sneak onto a Nevada <laughs> test site to engrave it on the manhole cover. Yeah, I thought that. No, it was a super story. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, of course, I could I can understand why the astrophysicist Brownlee was so reluctant to tell him how fast this manhole cover because cause it was going to open a complete can of worms. And any re recollections people had about uh, the tests he did were <laughs> all going to go out the window. All mm -hmm. people were interested in now was, oh, did we fire a manhole cover into outer space? That's, that's funny. <laughs> Uh, oh, and I yeah. recognized a, a voice, my good friend uh, Greg Willits there. Uh, oh, yeah. Thanks again to Greg. Uh, uh, lovely to uh, hear his dulcet tones again. Mm -hmm. And don't forget, if you ever need a, uh, a fantastic and very professional voiceover artist, then please grow, go to gregwillits.com. All right, Nick, let's do some feedback. Let's, uh, let's do this one here from Martin Kemp. Um, Hi, Jeff. First off, congratulations on your retirement and nearly 600 shows at the APG. Actually, more than that now. He sent this in a while back. Uh, as someone working in the commercial aviation industry, uh, but not an actual ATP pilot, it's very insightful to hear your analysis and comments about the stories you read out. Of course, your personal experiences and the plain tales are always great to hear. Yeah, we just... Uh, witnessed that uh, just a few moments ago. Thanks also to the rest of the team, Captain Nick, Dr. Steph, Macho Nick, and Miami Rick. And who could forget the ringmaster, Liz. What amazing aviation careers you all have. 
Yeah, she's she's back there in the background. Just uh, yeah, she's got a big ow. whip. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so anyway, he says, uh, continuing with uh, Martin's feedback, since joining Forflight, I have obtained my private and instrument ratings. Yay, that's awesome! Mm, wow, and that's have cool. now bought a Cherokee Six. Wow. So I appreciate the input on the general aviation side from Nick and Steph. So let's uh, that that deserves a big round yeah, of applause brilliant. from the APG crew. What's the Cherokee Six look like then, Jeff? It's like a uh, it's a Piper Cherokee low wing six place uh, single engine. Um, oh, so like a Cherokee Five, but a little bigger. Just one more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I don't think they have a Cherokee Five actually, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. I don't know. It's something to do with that. I'm not a Piper person, so I don't know. Um, anyway, aviation is such a welcoming community that was uh, initially daunting to get involved with. I wish I'd known as a kid in England just how keen pilots are to talk about their experiences and to take folks up flying. It might not have taken me 40 years to get into the left seat of a Cessna. My parents were glider pilots before I was born, so I developed the interest through them, but I didn't know how to get into the industry. I now love being able to share my passion and knowledge with my son's scout troop to inspire future aviators. That's cool. Great job with that. Absolutely. And he said, uh, thanks for all of you, uh, for all that you do to share the passion. So he's thanking all of us. Thank you, Martin. Um, yeah. So uh, again, he's... Um, uh, involved with uh, ForeFlight and uh, and other uh, products, uh, EFB products, and uh, and he sent me a nice personal note as well. So thank you, Martin. Uh, I'll be I'll be in touch with you regarding uh, the part that I'm not reading out. So um, excellent. You uh, know, I, I've I've been across to our local Scout Hut and uh, helped the. Well, we have Junior Junior scouts called beavers uh, and we uh nice they have a they have an aviation badge and they've got to talk to a pilot to get their aviation badge so i've done that a few times down there so that they can all proudly wear their badges nice. all right i was hoping i could find the the nice beaver thing oh well I'll uh, I'll put that in and post. Nice beaver. Nice beaver. Yeah, number, there you go. Number four. All right, number four. Uh, this is from JJ Not Pittsburgh. Uh, update. Congratulations, Jeff, on a career well accomplished. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, make sure to let us know when the RV is making its way through Tulsa. I would love for you to be able to park it at my house, but I think it may be better suited for this very annoying and nosy neighbor of mine. Okay. In fact, let let him know by sending him a record. You could play him twenty four hours from Tulsa, couldn't you? Yeah, Gene oh, Pitney. Very good, very good. Um, mm -hmm. And he says, "Who knows? Maybe we can convert her to becoming an APG listener." Yeah, I just hope that she, if she does listen, that she doesn't hear this piece of feedback. You said. Turn, <laughs> turn on his charm. <laughs> I'm currently building my flight time as a CFI. As I look at potential 121 carriers that I would be interested in flying for, I cannot help but notice the pilot shortage at ACME. It appears that you are losing captains, and the other crew members are generally, generally late or just 
don't show up, Steph and Rick. Oh, yeah. She's talking about our- <laughs> losing captains. What, what are they, all falling off their perches or something? Yeah, well, I think he's talking about our, our crew, uh, Acme here. Uh, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Hey, uh, once a captain, always a captain. That's right. Uh, what are the perks if I decide to float my application to you? <laughs> well, uh, no perks whatsoever. No, definitely not. Yeah. In fact, it's no. it's it's more of a, a more of a pain and, and a cost to you than than anything like a perk. Yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah, I can vouch for that. <laughs> uh, cheers, Jeff and crew, and congratulations on completing six hundred episodes. Thank you very much. Uh, Jordan, uh, JJ Pitts, not Pittsburgh in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, uh, Tulsa, you know, uh, holds a special. Oh, I thought that was in Tulsa. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. I guess it could be that <laughs> JJ, not Pittsburgh in Tulsa. Okay? okay. Yeah. Okay. He should have put a question mark there. Yeah, um, he should. but, uh, yeah, Tulsa holds a very special place in my heart because, uh, that's basically where I flew for the last time, uh, for Delta, uh, was that trip, uh, the overnight trip that I did there and, Got up. Uh, yeah. Do you remember where your first trip for Delta was? My first, ooh, my first trip for Delta. Liz is asking me if I remembered That's what a long time ago. that was. Would that be like, well, I, it doesn't matter because I can't remember my IOE. I can't remember no. where I went on my first trip. I have no idea. No clue? No, no clue whatsoever. Okay. Somewhere in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure. And I, I would, and I think I would uh, be leaving from Atlanta, really, going wow. somewhere, That's and then eventually weird. at the end of the trip coming back. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. I'm just looking to see where my first trip was to. Oh, I think I, you know, I did, I did uh, in the early days, in the first several years of my career at Delta, I printed out the uh, the rotations and the and the time. What, what, what call those things? Time sheets, uh, pay sheet. No, can't remember exactly what we called them. But anyway, I printed these things out and kept them in little binders. And I think I still have 1989, which would be my first, the first year of flying for Delta, my first trip. So I, I have a way to figure that out. I just don't know what. Maybe I'll I'll go search for that. Task for you. A retirement pet task, yeah. Maybe I'll. There you go. It's probably ninth the- of ninth of July, nineteen ninety four, with Roger Page, uh, Heathrow to JFK. Right. There you go. Your favorite. Yeah, I love it. I loved it so much. I did it another again five and times. Again and again. <laughs> <laughs> um, some audio from Pilot Pip. Okay, let's uh, let's do some audio feedback from. Uh, you may have heard of this dude, Pilot Pip. Does a podcast, Plane Safety, and uh, let's see what. Yeah, this is renowned for its audio quality. Well, actually, I did something to clean it up a bit, so I don't think it's too oh. bad. We'll, we'll see. Okay. Let's check it out. Clean up his language. Oh, I can't do anything about that. Hi, gang. Happy New Year, Pip here, with a question. Um, Czech Airmen is the subject of my question. Now, over here we call them, or at least we, I think the equivalent that we call them is line training captains. Now, in my head, line training captains and check airmen have always been the same thing, different name for uh, the same thing. But I'm not so sure if that's true. Um, so let me ask you, what is your understanding 
uh, of the function and role of a check airman in U.S. airlines. How do you become one? What are the qualifications? What primarily do they do? Uh, did you ever think about becoming one, Jeff, uh, and or Rick, if he's on the show? Um, for our part over here, line training captains, are, their primary role, I suppose, is for training and checking of, of uh, new pilots, so either new hires to the company or perhaps new pilots coming onto the fleet, having transferred from a different fleet. So they'll fly with new guys. Typically, for a new hire in our company, they'll fly 40 sectors or 100 hours, and all of that will be with a line training captain who will teach them the ropes of uh, you know how we operate the aircraft, the ins and outs of the company itself, uh, passenger interaction, all that kind of jazz. And that will then culminate in a line check, a two-sector line check, which I think is probably pretty standard all over the world. Um, also, a line, tra line training captain will administer the annual line check, which every pilot receives. Uh, on top of that, at least in my airline, the line training captain may also uh, find themselves doing assessments in the sim. Maybe someone has failed a line check or needs a bit of extra training. They might find themselves in the simulator helping out in that capacity. And they also support generally the, the, the chief pilot team in identifying trends, uh, coming up with suggestions for new SOPs, although actually that falls more under the um, job description of standards captains, which is a, another thing altogether. I don't know if you have an equivalent. Do you have standards captains in U.S. airlines? Anyway, that's my question. Uh, what I've described there, is that the same thing that a check airman does in the U.S.? All right, take care, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Pip. Um, basically, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's like a the same uh, at every airline here in the U.S. I can only speak for my company or my former company, Delta. And uh, line check airmen or check airmen, uh, we've kind of used those um, interchangeably. Uh, we're... We're, we're line pilots that um, volunteered to do the duties of a line check airman. And then they go through an interview process and, and usually they know, you know, they're maybe friends with, I mean, this is not always the case, but um, they, they probably know somebody in the line check airman ranks. Um, and the reason why I never, um, volunteered to do it is that um, the I just wanted to fly the line and I wanted to fly my trips and then during my time off I wanted to do all the things I wanted to do with my family and hobbies and that kind of thing. Uh, whereas if you are a line check airman, I mean you were you were much busier. You were you were doing the trips with new people, as you mentioned. You know, flying initial operating experiences with uh, people that are new to the fleet. Um, they also give um, check rides. Uh, for us at Delta, it was every two years we had to have a line check, not every not every year. Um, and uh, they they do a lot of the extra things, like if a, if an airplane needed uh, uh, a special functional check flight, then they were qualified to do the functional check flight profiles, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so they, they there was a lot of extra flying that they did now they did get compensated for that uh there there's an override i believe 
hourly override. So in addition to their regular hourly rate, they get paid more. But they work. I mean, they they made their money because they worked pretty hard or they work pretty hard. Um, and that just sounded like too much work for me. <laughs> so um, I didn't uh, volunteer uh, to put my hat in the ring or whatever. The, You'd rather do a podcast. Uh, wanted, yeah, I'd rather do a podcast. That takes all my time. Um, yeah, for no money. <laughs> for, yeah, for nothing. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the reason why I never, um, wanted to do that job and God bless them. They're, you know, really good people that, that, uh, really work hard. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, that never interested me at all. Um, now the, the pilots that are line pilots that, uh, also are simulator instructor pilots, uh, there is a certain percentage of our sim instructors that are line pilots and then the other uh percentage uh which is probably a greater percentage i'm i'm thinking are non-seniority list uh, pilots many retired pilots that come in and and uh instruct in the simulator um and uh but the one the line pilots that we have the seniority list instructors that we have in the simulator uh system are not the same thing as uh, check airmen or line check airmen. Uh, so that's, that's like a separate, those are two separate categories. Um, and so, and they couldn't, they weren't interchangeable. You couldn't bring in a simulator instructor pilot to do the, an, an initial operating experience with somebody or do a line check. It was a completely different, um, structure and same thing with the line check airmen. They couldn't go into the simulator complex and be simulator instructors. Uh, to completely, completely separate. Or was that all the uh, questions he had of, so, regarding yeah, that? Yeah. So, and again, I think that that's not necessarily the same at all the like United and American, all the other airlines. They, I think that there, they can do dual roles in some of these other major airlines that we have, or air, uh, just major carriers here in the U.S., where you can do, both do simulator instruction and line flying instruction as well but i could be wrong i don't know so that's the as best as i can explain it to you as far as uh what happens over here in the u.s at least at delta before you move on for some reason tim van ram knows where your first flight was oh look at that tim van ram uh says he he seems to recall that my first trip was at kill devil hills that is so... He's right. <laughs> oh, Liz says, he's right. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Let's see if I can uh, get, play something in here that might be... <laughs> yeah. Guys, you've just got over five minutes left, so is there one you particularly want to cover or just what? Uh, Nick, is there anyone that you want to no no i like you okay we could do a bit more pips or uh because he's got another one there doesn't he uh no those or are just that? different versions uh, that i had oh, to right. use to okay. clean up so um, uh, how about how about the next one sam dawson's okay yep number seven let's do seven Okay, this is from Sam. Um, the recent debonair crash involving uh, the tennessee fly girl drew a great deal of criticism of the pilot it's early in the investigation, but my gut feeling is that there was an issue with instruction. And I think even now, before the NTSB is finished, 
there are some lessons to be learned. Number one, up until recently, most GA airplanes were all similar. They all had the standard six-pack, and avionics was pretty much the same thing. I didn't see an autopilot for the first 10 years of flying. Airplane checkouts were pretty straightforward uh, with the instructor maybe having to show the student how to how retractable landing gear and a constant speed propeller worked, maybe even a turbocharger. Now with the advancement of avionics and instruments, the cockpits of many GA airplanes are now often more complex than those of airliners. I've flown GA autopilots that were more sophisticated than the one in my ancient Boeing. Airlines don't just throw pilots into the seats of new airplanes. Captain Jeff and I have tens of thousands of hours, yet we are both Boeing pilots. Put us in an Airbus with no training, and we would be loster than an Easter egg. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. We go through, um, or went through in Jeff's case, extensive training before we even stepped into the full motion simulator, much less the actual airplane. Unfortunately, the training of GA GA airplanes has often not kept up with the technology. Instructors often throw students into the airplanes right away and try to teach them how the systems work. I think GA instructors could learn lessons from airlines and places like Flight Safety that do type ratings. And then he uh, gives us an alert. Nerd alert! It's a training nerd alert. I've gotten several type ratings, and the steps generally follow the rote uh, understanding, application, and correlation levels of learning. I guess that's some kind of a um, acronym, isn't it? R-U-A-C. Rote understanding, application, and correlation levels of learning, though we call it something else in the airlines. Uh, in the airlines, these phrases are systems, rote understanding of the, syst- uh, the airplane systems to include GPS and autopilot. This is not delving into the trivia. No one cares how many rivets are in the tail boom, but the pilot should start to know the systems, limitations, and emergency procedures. This stage is completed with a written and or oral examination. Procedures, develop understanding. Ideally, use a ground-based procedure trainer, a ground-based procedure trainer, computer-based trainer, or hook up ground power to the airplane and learn how to how the different systems actually work. This should not be done while the airplane is flying, as that is a horrible classroom and is completed after a hands-on test of the different systems. Movement validation or application learning of lear- level of learning. In this stage, the pilot should um, the pilot should know the airplane. Let's we'll see. The pilot should the airplane using the systems. What is it I'm missing there? In this stage, control the plane. Um, uh, at this stage, the pilot should know how to use the systems, but also hand fly. For example, if instrument rated, be able to shoot and approach using the autopilot, hand flying using the flight director, and hand flying using raw data. Even a VFR pilot should know how to turn the autopilot on and off and how to use its basic functions, such as climbing, descending, and turning. Hand flying should include steep turns, slow flight, stalls, and different landings. Well, these are, I have a lot of different landings in my logbook. Um, While these are things that should be tested in the procedure stage, now the pilot does it for real in the airplane. This phase should be completed with a flight review and or instrument proficiency check to the standards of their certificate level. Line-oriented flight training or correlation stage. Do a few cross-countries where the pilot puts it all together. Perhaps give them some scenarios such as simulated electrical failure leading to a diversion. Teaching this way involves a good deal of footwork and preparation by the instructor as well as the student. 
It may also require an instructor seeking additional training. Much of the training will not involve flying, but ground-based training. I encourage any listeners going through aircraft-type training to seek out instructors who generally use this process, and for instructors who do this type of training to do their homework. Also, give yourself time to learn about the airplane and how the systems are integrated and to do this training. Sorry for the long rant. Keep the sunny side up, Sam. No, I, I love Sam. He is uh, very passionate about uh, flight training, um, it, which is awesome, which is great. And that's an area, uh, general aviation training is an area that definitely could use some improvement uh, here in the U.S. and probably around the world. Um, and uh, so he kind of pointed out some of the differences between how the airlines do it and the military do it and how general aviation does it in general. Um, no pun intended. But um, Tim W in the chat has a comment. Jeff. Tim W in our chat says my part 135 type rating experience was not positive at all. Learned a lot from it though. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. How not to do it? Yeah. I mean, well, that's you know, negative negative um, uh, learning is is a, is an effective learning method too, but not my preferred method. <laughs> I prefer no, positive exactly right. yeah. and experiences. But um, what do you think, Captain Nick? I think um, uh, Sam's hit the nail on the head. Uh, part of the problem, uh, I feel in my gut, although I haven't got a lot to support this, is that because uh, flight instruction uh, is a very well-trodden path for a, a very new uh, and inexperienced pilots to gain hours um, by the mere fact that they are just, you know, they, they're, they're very early on in their flying careers. They don't have a, a wealth of experience that uh, they're going to achieve, you know, years later. Um, they're not always the best people to do the job. Uh, and it's very easy to come across someone who doesn't really have their heart in the job and is really just ticking boxes, waiting for the 1,500 hours so they can go and join the airlines. That's their ultimate aim. They, they haven't really committed themselves to a career as a flight instructor. I think uh, you will find good flight instructors out there and people who are conscientious about their job but it's not like they've chosen that career path. That career path has almost been forced upon them because of the need to generate hours before they can get the licenses they want. And that does not always breed the best type of instructor, the most conscientious instructor, the most knowledgeable instructor. Um, so I think if you are going to learn to fly, it's incumbent on you to... Um, be careful uh, how you pick someone to teach you and make sure that you have got the best of the bunch, as it were. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, the, the instructors out there that are doing this as their, their end um, goal is this is what they want to do you know, for, for their career are that's awesome i mean I, I wish there were more of them out there but as you mentioned many most i would say of the instructors out there in the general aviation world are are just there to just a stepping stone to build hours and that kind of thing 
Yeah. Now, if they've got that kind of professional attitude towards their job that we hope all pilots have, but mm -hmm. sadly, uh, the more of these um, accident stories and incidents we read about, the more we realize that people aren't always motivated uh, in the correct way. If they are motivated to be as professional a pilot as they can, they will probably make great instructors. Mm -hmm. But it's it's the percentage that aren't. Are following their hearts that Nigel are the ones that worry you. Well, Nigel's asking, who's training the GA trainers? Well, the ones that were had just gone through the training and are now <laughs> moving on to the airlines. You know, that's and you know, I have to. I was thinking about it when you were talking about this, uh, Nick. That uh, my personal flight training was uh, my instructor was a guy who had just gone through undergraduate pilot training in the U.S. Air Force. And um, he had just gone, you know, gotten his wings, went to pilot instructor training for three months, came back, and I was one of his first students. And and he was just there to do his next three years and then get another assignment. And so, in a way, it's kind of the same type of a system as many instructors in the GA world um, are are living in and, and operating in. Um, so, and it would be easy. I guess for uh, my military instructor pilot to kind of have a bad attitude and not do a very good job, but that was not the case at all. Now, in a way, you have to realize that these um, these young uh, instructor we call them um, uh, FAPES, first assignment instructor pilots, uh, are working hard not only because they are probably just good people and they would do it regardless, but also because they know that they're still working toward their next assignment especially the ones that wanted to go and fly fighters and that kind of thing. They were doing everything they possibly could to kind of shine a positive light on them uh, so that their, um, their, um, what, uh, what do you call those things? Uh, assessments. Yeah. They're, um, I forgot what we call those things. Um, and I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> yeah. Getting? Evaluation. Yeah. Hey, Hey, about, <laughs> yeah, what do we call OERs offer uh, officer evaluation reports? Or I guess they, they call them something else now. But um, anyway, it's the same thing. So we get the every year you get a, an evaluation report. And they were doing everything they can possibly do to make themselves look just like mm. the best pilot ever in the entire world and the best in leader. In other words, and doing a good a job as they could. Exactly. Eva's so there was a some very positive comment just to end on. Okay. Eva says, in defense of younger hour building type um, flight instructors, my last two instructors have since last left for the airlines have been fantastic, extremely knowledgeable and diligent. That's good to hear. And I think, I think that you would agree. Uh, we agree, Eva, that that most of them are um, doing a great job. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's just that there's going to be the odd one that is not going to put their heart and soul into it. And as a result, you know, we, we talked about the instructor that this lady had, um, you know, that um, uh, he may not have done the best job for her. And as a result, she lost her life, you know, so ooh, it's a wiry. Yeah, a big yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. A Super Fred Driver says, Jeff, the hardest job of being a fape and, and Super Fred Driver was a FAPE, first assignment instructor pilot in the Air Force, was always competing. We would have loved to focus purely on the student, but we were competitive based off what we did outside the jet. Yeah. So in addition to what you were doing as an instructor pilot, um, yeah, it's a competitive world. And um, a lot of times comp competition breeds 
excellence. So um, that's good to hear uh, different kind of opinions regarding all of this. And Sam, it was very nice that you took the time uh, to uh, send us that very in-depth uh, analysis of where you Thoughtful, think yeah. the GA training world should be going and which are they, what they should be doing. And, uh, and, and it sounds like there are many out there that are, are, are doing that. And uh, that's good to hear. One last item here. All right. Uh, let's just do one more and then we're going to wrap it up. Um, this is from Tim Qualls. He said, hi, crew. First, just wanted to say how impressive it is that Captain Jeff had so much forethought when beginning APG. I'm sure it isn't just a coincidence that his retirement fell in line with the 600th show. <laughs> well, yeah, it is, actually. Yeah, that's um, a planner extraordinary. The planning when starting the podcast must have been amazing to have seen. Yeah, I was plotting yeah, it all very out. very impressive, wasn't it? <laughs> Let's see those guys from the Best Aviation Podcast pull that off. <laughs> well, they probably they probably will. Actually, uh, yeah. When I started, I had no idea that I would do more than you know ten or fifteen of these things. <laughs> ah, anyway, you'll get it right someday. Jim. Yeah, I'll get it. Well, I'm still trying to perfect. You know, practice makes per perfect. They say. Uh, in all seriousness, congratulations on your retirement and the 600th show. Both are great accomplishments, and it's an honor to have gotten to know you and the crew. Since you and Captain Nick are retired and most likely finished flying for good, it got me to wondering, what would be your most memorable flight from your careers, the one that stands out the most to you? And even though the rest of the crew hasn't reached retirement yet, be interesting to know theirs as well up to this point. Well, we're not going to be able to hear from anybody else regarding that question you have, Tim, but uh, you have two of us here, two retired old geezers. Um, so again, that was Tim Qualls. Um, Nick, what's What's your most memorable flight? Uh, that's a bit of a tough one because, uh, you know, I think about my last approach into Kai Tak, flying around the checkerboard, putting it down, getting airborne uh, after our 48-hour layover, and uh, within a couple of days the airport was closed and no one was ever going to do it again. Mm. But really and honestly, I think <laughs> most memorable was one of the most horrible <laughs> Well, I mean, it can um, be a negative memory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why it sticks in my brain. Uh, and I was um, uh, flying out of Macrahanish to, no, oh, out of, um, it wasn't Macrahanish, it was Benbecula uh, on the Western Isles to bring an F3 back to uh, our base. And uh, we attended a very a formal. Uh, dining in night but lots of booze and very early the next morning we were woken up and told we needed the jet back as soon as possible so uh, we clambered into this thing still uh, pretty hungover and probably still reeking of booze and of course uh, we had to beat up the airfield because that was a requirement um, and um, <laughs> going over this airfield in the tornado with the wings all the way back steaming along pulled up into the vertical and uh, the tornado wasn't a great performer. Uh, and, you know, was kind of hoping that we would reach the cloud before we run out of air, air speed because the cloud's about 10,000 feet. Anyway, we popped into this cloud and I relaxed and thought, oh, the Lord, we, we, we've made it look as impressive as we can. By the way, I've been doing twizzles in the way, Elwin rolls on the way up. So 
I was, wasn't sure which way was up, but it didn't really matter because when you're just pointing vertically upwards, you just pull because, uh, you know, all horizons are equally close. Anyway, I reached in and thought I put the wings forward because they were all the way back in 67, so we'd have some lift. Banged them all the way forward um, and um, uh, started pulling for the horizon uh, on instruments, of course. Uh, and the next thing I know, the angle of attack, uh, booper went off uh, and we departed into an incipient spin and the airplane flicked a couple of times and I went oh my god and centralized the controls and the navigator in the back was shouting what the hell are you doing it was, <laughs> it was the bear was in the back seat um, and uh, I, I suddenly realized I, I hadn't moved the wings I, I'd reached out and done something but I I hadn't moved the wings. So I grabbed the, the lever and banged the wings all the way forward. And the wings started chuntering. And eventually uh, we sort of unstalled the wings. I'd unloaded. We unstalled the wings. But as the wings came forward, I realized what I had moved the first time. I'd, what I'd done was put the flaps out. Uh, and <laughs> stupid me. And uh, as the wings came forward, the interlocks were released. And now the flap started to extend, uh, except, of course, we were well above the flap extension speed at that point. Rut row. <laughs> Rut row. Uh, all these clangers and things went off uh, the airplane going, oh, my God, you've oversped the flaps. So, you know, it was. I sorted it out and got the flaps in, uh, leveled off and, and went, oh, God, I had to do a low-speed handling check, snag the airplane on the ar on arrival. So it was far from uh, a perfect uh, flight, but one I definitely remember. And you lived through it. Thank I did, indeed. That was the important bit. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't kill yeah. your backseater at the what same time. You? I didn't kill the bear, no. Yeah. Um, how about me? Gosh, I mean, there are so many. Uh, amazing experiences I had both in the air force and the, and the airlines. And, you know, as, as Nick is mentioning, sometimes the ones that stick out most in your mind are the ones that things went wrong, like terribly wrong and wasn't a pleasant memory. Um, uh, and I guess the, the one that was most unpleasant for me was the little, the little incident that I had, the little misunderstanding I had with air traffic control up around the, um, around the nation's capital here in the U.S., uh, Washington, mm -hmm. D.C., in a restricted, prohibited area, uh -oh. actually, yeah. um, right, right. that I allegedly had um, had uh, gone into. Uh, turns out that I was exonerated from that, but uh, that was not a lot of fun, that couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> uh, vacation, not vacation. Um, but... Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, and then, you know, a couple of emergencies in my time, like the engine failure during the middle of a spin um, recovery. Oh, nice. Uh, and uh, a couple of other, uh, I almost uh, commanded, I never did bail out of an airplane, but I almost commanded a bailout uh, when I was a, an instructor pilot. And uh, it, it's a long story. But anyway, um, fortunately, I didn't command the bailout when I realized that uh, all these warnings and systems that were going off and blaring uh, were all um, associated with a, an electrical fault and uh, none of these things were actually happening and uh, the airplane was still pretty much you know good airplane so we we flew it back to the base uh, anyway so many different things so many beautiful things I've seen so many beautiful sunsets and sunrises and 
and uh, city lights in the middle of the night and the starry skies. I mean, you know, flying out west in the U.S. and in the middle of the night and looking up and just realizing, you know, how really insignificant we are when you look at all the just, you know, millions and millions or billions of stars in the sky. It's just uh, so much, um, so much uh, that I have uh, memories of. And I can't just I can't just narrow it down to one memorable flight, unfortunately. So. Well, on that. Thank you for asking the question, note. though, Tim. I do appreciate it. And, you know, honestly, um, the, the best part of, and I, I say this time and time again here on the show, best part of doing this whole podcasting thing that I never knew would turn into this uh, is the community that has been built around it and uh, knowing all of you and You're meeting here. you and, and hearing from you and getting together every week and these wonderful people that are uh, in our live chat room. Uh, just it, it's just um, an amazing thing that uh, I just never get tired of. So um, I may be retired from the airlines, uh, but I'm not retired from you know doing this doing this podcast. So anyway, that's about uh, all we have to you say said about wonderful that. Wonderful people. Why is Nige gone? <laughs> oh well, because I was waiting for him to leave. <laughs> and then I could honest, be honest about uh, the wonderful people in the chat room. No, <laughs> just he kidding. must have gone. Okay. Well, I don't know if he's there. Or not. Yeah, he must have. Anyway, um, so uh, that's going to wrap it up for part two. And we're going to uh, do our standard wrap-up, which is point you to our website, airlinepilotguy.com. Thank you for those who have reached out to me regarding the HTTPS thing. I'll uh, be in touch regarding that. Um, also, um, Nick, would you like to tell us about the social media that we're in? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We are still a presence on Facebook. So if you are interested in finding our page there, search for Airline Pilot Guy, or one word. And uh, on X, which used to be Twitter, uh, we're at APG Crew. And on the Instas, where I will post all the artwork, that sort of thing, APG Crew. And and on YouTube, uh, you can find us at youtube.com forward slash airline pilot guy, all one word. There we go. That's what we use as our platform to record these shows. And you can see uh, what we look like. And uh, you may not yeah. want to, but yeah, <laughs> uh, face for radio, they say. And uh, yeah, so check it out. It's like the uh, the sausage being made, and and you can be part of this wonderful. You keep live your audience. sausage out of it. Well, yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, that's the uh, APG After Dark. Uh, it's a separate channel <laughs> where Is we do charge. Anybody in your bathroom? Uh, anybody in my bathroom? I don't know. Why would you? Uh, why would you say that, Liz? Well, someone's got to look out for the water feature. Oh yeah, that's that's what it sounded like actually. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, can you tell us about Slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. That's okay, I am too, here in the kitchen. <laughs> um, so he's going to go ahead and tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel. 
spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thanks a lot, hello. Sorry, Jeff, I might have used all your skin lotion. Oh no, it's so dry and cold. Well, I need that lotion. Uh, you it. might want to tell him to mop up while he's in there. Yeah. Yeah, there's all kinds of issues involved with this whole Hillel and Slack thing. But I love him, and uh, everybody else loves him as well. So thanks, Hillel, for for doing this for us. And uh, let's see. I guess that's going to do it. And we're going to go ahead and uh, wish everybody a great weekend. Oh, before we do that, we need to uh, thank you for popping into the the video there, Liz. Uh, Thank you so much for... All the hard work that you do Thank behind you, the Liz. scenes. Good job. My pleasure. Keeping us on track as much as you possibly can. Doing my best. Yeah. And um, anyway, uh, we love you. We love everybody in the chat room. We love everybody that's listening to our show right now. So with that, we're going to wish you clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy